This sports social podcast is brought to you by BetVictor, where live streams, smart stats, and in-play betting can help you make your best bet yet. 18 plus, BeGambleAware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of VAR at the Bar. I'm Dan, and who am I with today? I'm Chris. Well, man. The usual suspects, how are we doing? Yeah, good, thank you, mate. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, living the dream. <laughs> yeah, I'm very good, thanks. Very good. You're good. You uh, been missing us since we've not been together so frequently lately? Well, I see Chris nearly every day, so... Oh, is that why you sound a bit down every episode? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so on the lineup today, we're doing our top five international tournaments. So this is the top five that are favourite individually to myself, Chris and Ant. Ant's going to give us his good, the bad, the obscure entry. Our top 10 this week is our, during the Premier League era, a top 10 English players who never earned a cap for England. And then we'll finish off with a quiz. Cool. Sounds, Sounds good. good to me. Excellent. So then, top five international tournaments. I'm going to kick it over to Ant first. <laughs> uh, you okay. don't have to go in any particular order. Just, All right, you, okay. just talk about one of the tournaments and, and why you enjoyed it. Okay. Well, let's get the obvious one out of the way. Euro 96. Yeah. It was just, I think it was like the first tournament that I was properly into football for. And obviously it was set over here and it was just the, the you know, the, the hype and the buzz around it and England getting to the semis and, various other great teams in there like Germany and Czech Republic and Holland and yeah just just overall just every time I look back at a tournament that that one is top of the list every time it's just something about the atmosphere at the time I'm sure you remember it yourself yeah I've made a point of it on my list as well for the same reasons it was the way that, that there's just euphoria over the country wasn't it, it was, yeah I've not seen anything like that since in this country it was pretty amazing I think it helped um having Scotland in the group as well so yep. there's, there's that, that rivalry as well. and I think it helped that we beat Scotland in the group. Well, we made hard work of it. <laughs> Not as hard work as the most recent one. Well, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, like you say, I thought the, the quality of football was very good as well. Um, and I just fully enjoyed it. Just the way that as well, 
Um, always nice seeing the home nation giving someone a good whooping, especially when it was the Dutch, when you didn't expect it as well. Everything just clicked that night, didn't it? No matter what what there was, it, it just seemed unbeatable that night. And I always just remember Shearer's goal in the top bag. can't remember which number it was in the whooping, but the way he hit it so sweetly at the top, hit the roof of the net like anything. I think, I don't know if it's because I was, like, like I said, I was quite new to football at that point. I didn't really know what to expect from England. And I was sort of like, oh, you know, England are going to win this tournament. Whereas tournaments afterwards, I'm a bit like, oh, this is going to end in tears. This is crap. <laughs> Wasn't that the first tournament with Bedeal and Skinner with the, the song as well? Yeah, there was that yeah, as well. So you see yeah. that came through as well, didn't it? And it brought everyone together, didn't it? It's just amazing what the song sort of did as well. <laughs> yeah, and also um, we'd had some bad years in Euro 92 yeah. didn't qualify for USA 94 so it, I, I mean I just put it as like England rising from the ashes almost yeah a, a real homecoming just just to play some good football and be competitive again it was uh very much needed at the time yeah uh, I also made a note that um I think we won a penalty shootout against Spain in that tournament terrible yes. game but just to <laughs> win a shootout it was such a relief the quarter final wasn't it yeah 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 so I enjoyed that yeah. And then, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great semi-final against uh, Germany again, wasn't it? Oh, Gaza was two inches away from that goal, getting the ball in, wasn't he? And the ball came in from Anderton and he slid in and you're just like, oh, he's so yeah. close to it. It's very, very emotional. Yeah. And Psycho scoring the penalty as well. <laughs> yeah, that was emotional. The redemption. <laughs> Yeah, this is it. I, I didn't really know any of that backstory, so I was just like, no. this like weirdo playing left back and going mental at scoring a penalty. Yeah. <laughs> right, Chris, do you want to give us another one off your list? Yeah, mine was actually the um, Euros this year, to be honest. Um, I just think that after everything that the world's gone through as well, that number one thing, having fans in obviously quite a lot of the places, a limited amount was just great to see and the standard of football was just as good um and i just fully enjoyed it to be honest it's just nice having to talk about something other than the pandemic for about four four weeks and obviously england's passage to the final as well was was entertaining game against germany was a particular highlight i thought um and it's just nice like you said i think after 96 like this was the like the time the nation like came together again you know and it just seemed like everyone was singing from the same hymn sheet except for obviously the penalty shootout that was a bit bit rubbish at the end but i just thought there's real hope isn't there now as looking forward for qatar and i just i just thought as a whole the tournament was good yeah completely agree i've I, I played it on list as well uh it was an entertaining tournament. There was um, a few matches in the group stages which weren't as competitive. Yeah. But at the same time, it was good to see some of the lesser teams get a bit of an opportunity on the big stage. Yeah. And um, by the time the knockout rounds came, you got some quality matches throughout the knockout of the competition. Some great yeah. games in there. Uh, and also, like you say, the growth of England throughout the tournament. Uh, I think we were all criticising the defence when we went in. I don't think we can see the goal till the semi-finals. Yeah, we all criticised Kane in the group stages, and then he came alive in the, in the yeah. knockouts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then um, 
Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips in the middle of midfield. Yeah. Happy with that. And then people moaned that Sterling was starting and he was our top scorer, wasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it took a very good Italian team to beat us in the end. So, no, it was, it was a very entertaining tournament and um, it was good to see England get a little bit of success again. Yeah. Anything else to add on, on Euro 2021, Ant? Uh, no, um, I actually didn't put it on my list. Um, Fair enough. Partly, for, I mean, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed England's rise to the final, but I, I didn't find the tournament as a whole as enjoyable as some of the other ones on my list, so that's why I left it. Oh, that's fair enough, fair enough. All right, uh, I'm going to talk about World Cup 1990. So this is... Um... Yeah, I've shown your age now. <laughs> yeah, well, it's one of my earliest football memories. There's a couple before it, but it's the first time I really followed England at the tournament. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't old enough and mature enough to follow the whole tournament, which is probably a blessing, having gone back and watched some of the games. But um, England's journey, I, I just have memories of um, the, the game against the Netherlands, which finished 0-0. Um, it was an exciting game because England came close to winning it, but uh, also lasting memory of um, Gascoigne doing a Cruyff turn against two Dutch defenders and going straight through the middle of it. That was, that was pretty amazing. And uh, Mark Wright's uh, goal against Egypt, that was... A moment of relief as they got through the group stage. Uh, Platt's volley in the last minute of extra yeah. time was pretty spectacular. And then the um, the scare against Cameroon and Lineker held his nerve to took away two penalties under pressure. Uh, th- those were my memories uh, of really enjoying the England's journey through the tournament. And then obviously we met West Germany in the semi-finals, where um, they got a deflected free kick for their first goal. <laughs> which was a bit unlucky and then I remember the shot by Chris Waddle in extra time where he, he rifled it across the box it looked like it was going all the way and then at the last second it sort of started to curl away and it came back off the inside of the post I, I really thought we'd actually scored the winner at that point but uh, on the whole it was uh, it was great to see England do that well play that well get that far and uh, they came back as heroes. And that was one of my earliest memories, which uh, really got me hooked on football. Mm. So it definitely has to go on my list. Well, it was the rebirth of English football, wasn't it? I mean, if we don't, not to go too political with it, but obviously the fans of England were banned, weren't they? The clubs were from European football for five odd years. Absolutely. The, yeah. the, the league was in a bit of a, a state and even snooker overtook it as the number one game in the 80s. Wow, there's a stat. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, the, the number one game. So this, I think, again, was like the, the reunited of of England as as the number one sport in in the in the country. And like like we said, similar to '96, it got everyone watching, didn't it? No, you're right. You're right. I think it's um, partly to do with the playing style as well. The likes of Gascoigne and Waddle yeah. carrying the ball forward and carrying that threat, all that flair that we had in the team. That was quite new at the time. So I think that's what started to change the direction of English football. Yeah, and, and obviously on the footballing side, you know, the this counter storyline where with the other semi-final where Maradona faced the Italians. Yes. And that Very, um, that's that's what created all the trouble that he had at Napoli afterwards. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Because um, he tried to get the Naples fans to cheer Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Because he was that much of a god there, which is a nice counter um, storyline on that. The only thing that I did find was that there wasn't that many goals in it. 
if you look back on it, there are a lot of nil nils, one nils, very tight yeah. games, no yeah. games. Reason for that, they had a pass back rule. Yeah, <laughs> you could pass back. Say. So that that's yeah. that was the last World Cup with that yeah, rule. which nicely comes on to why I had ninety four. <laughs> Okay, yeah. talk about it now if you want, Chris. 94. Yeah, which moves like moves it on to why I had 94 on the list. Because there's just more flowing football and went to a country that is well that um was very new to the to the sport and a lot of people were very um not too happy with it going there. I thought barring Diana Ross's miss with the kick at the beginning at the opening <laughs> ceremony. <laughs> That I think it went very well as a whole. I mean, even USA, I think, got through to the knockouts on that as well, which is quite amazing for them. Um, but yeah, I just enjoyed it. Just just a fantastic, you know, Romario, Bebeto, Brazil. It's just a shame, obviously, England weren't there. And the way that the Italians just stayed in the tournament against against everything, every game they had was some sort of controversy going on with that whether it was, I think Zola got sent off in one game and Saki just about not got sacked <laughs> in the tournament a few times. It's just mad madness. The Irish beat them in the group as well, didn't they? Exactly. So, yeah, Ray Houghton. Yeah, yeah. scoring that. And Ireland getting through, I think they got got through to, to the next one. I vaguely remember 94. That really was the first yeah. tournament I ever watched. And I remember the final being pretty boring yeah 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 i don't remember much else to be honest no yeah that was the first tournament i was really excited for apart from the fact that england weren't in it which i was pretty gutted about so i didn't make i didn't put it on my list here but that's the first tournament which i followed from beginning to end and i was particularly enjoyed watching brazil in that tournament it's the first time i'd seen them properly all right and have you got another one off your list for us yeah, you might find this one a bit funny, but uh, I've gone for uh, the 97 Le Tournois. Oh, the one that England won. Yeah, it wasn't just the fact that England won. It was the fact that there was, you know, this four good, from what I remember, it was four good teams, yeah. played good football. There were some great games. I think Brazil and Italy had a three-all draw and France and Italy drew two-all. It was end-to-end stuff. And England played... I think they played like two different teams, I think, didn't they? I think they had the youngsters for one game and then yeah. the older heads for the other one. And yeah, from what I remember, I just, it was just nice to see. And it was just an enjoyable little round robin tournament. And, and obviously, you've got the Roberto Carlos free kick that everyone remembers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And obviously, yeah. the because England won, you know, some silverware. But, you know, Dan mm-hmm. said for personal reasons. So I thought, sort it, I'll put it in. <laughs> No, no, that's a good one. Oh, I, I considered that, it, to be fair. It, it was quite funny that um, Japan was the, the, the team that they had from the other side, from Asia as well. <laughs> you thought that they would get, get battered, but they were quite good, weren't they? Yeah, I don't think they got, got sunk too many times or not. Are we talking about the same tournament, Chris? Was it, was it Japan? Or was no. that a different one? Was it all Sweden that was in this one, was it? It was England, Brazil, France and Italy. Yeah, I don't know know what you're thinking of, but yeah, any Uh, any viewers can enlighten us on that one, please do. Listeners, sorry, (laughs) all right, I'll give another one off my list. Uh, I went for the 2018 World Cup, 
So the last World Cup, uh, again, it's because uh, I enjoyed following England's journey. So a bit unfancied going in, um, apart from the um, expected win against Panama, where we thumped them. <laughs> uh, we, we, we lost to Belgium in the group, um, but we still got through after a late winner against, uh, was it Tunisia? Uh, yeah, yeah it, was. it was. Uh, but then um, the draw opened up for England and suddenly there was a bit of hope that we could actually go on and win it. And where we, we got a win on penalties against Colombia, which I watched with Chris, where we were absolutely <laughs> nerve jangled behind Chris's sofa. Yeah. And then uh, we got Sweden in the next round, uh, beat them to get to the semi-finals. It was, a, it was a bit of a strange path, but there was hope that England could actually go all the way. And it was just, it was just great to have that hope again, because it was really between Euro 96 and 2018 for me that I really felt that. I know we've had some good teams in between. But there were always problems, weren't there? There were always doubts. And uh, yeah, to win a penalty shootout in a World Cup that for the first time ever as well. That was a that was a big moment for me. Uh, some of the good games in there, apart from England's journey as well. There was Spain three, Ronaldo three, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Japan two, Belgium three. That was a cracking game where Belgium came back from two 0 down. And then the, That's uh, the I was not watching it when Japan was two 0 up. <laughs> Oh, too optimistic. And then uh, Argentina nil, Croatia three, where they were absolutely played off the park. Argentina players arguing with each other. Messi again on the big stage, having problems. It was um, it was all entertaining stuff actually. And then also the the Russians who were hosting uh, going into the tournament, they were rumored to be one of the worst host nations ever. But then <laughs> they beat Saudi Arabia five one, beat Egypt three one. And they knocked Spain out in the knockout round, so that was a that was a quite an incredible journey for them. So yeah, I just have great memories of that World Cup. It was entertaining stuff. All right, uh, have you got another one for us, Chris? Um, I have, and that is the '98 World World Cup, where you just didn't know who was going to win. It was one of the most openest, uh, in my opinion, finals. Every, every most teams had a star player. Um, you know, South South America, Brazil, obviously, were up there, Argentina, and then you had like Chile had Salas, Uruguay, just coming through as well. Um, then obviously, European teams with France, who got knocked out early. No, that was another side, France, who won. Um, yeah, and I just fully enjoyed it. And also the Bergkamp's goal against um, Argentina as well in extra time. The golden yeah, goal in that the was final where he decides to flick it over someone's head and volley it, which is pretty special. Not to mention you had the, the Owen goal. Of course, yes. yeah. 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 And Croatia's rise to the... Yeah. Was it the third thing. or something, didn't they? That, I think that year. Yeah. They did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. No, that was good. That's on my list, France 98. That was another one I really enjoyed. Just Again, to show that Ronaldo had that panic attack in the final, or whatever it was that didn't make him start, because I think that would have been a real good... Oh, he had some convulsion or something, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. It just ended up being a bit of an anticlimax, didn't it? Yeah, they did in some ways. Uh, Brazil were heavy favourites, weren't they? And then yeah. France just swept them aside and 
Brazil didn't even lay a glove on them in the end. It's a bit of a yeah. bit of a shame. I enjoyed the um, Brazil versus Denmark match. Yes, the last one the Loudrup brothers were playing it, obviously for Denmark. Three two, I think. Yeah, cracking goal, cracking game. Okay, Uh, last one off my list is the 2014 World Cup. Uh, I know England didn't have a very good um, outing in this one. (laughs) Dumped out by the Italy. Uruguay and Costa Rica in the group stages, but it's it's mainly for the Brazil one, Germany seven results in the World Cup in Brazil, which is for me probably the most memorable football match I've ever seen. <laughs> that, for yeah. me, I was just stunned watching that, and the, there were tears in the crowd. <laughs> it was it was I've not seen anything like it. That was incredible. And then also there was a Spain one, Netherlands five results in the group stages as well. So two big yeah. results that really stood out for me. And then you had the uh, Luis Suarez getting a bit peckish. <laughs> With Chiellini, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I remember that Spain um, the Netherlands game, because that was mad, because Spain were actually leading 1-0. And yep. then, then Van Persie scored like the longest distance header I've ever seen in my life. Oh, is that when he did his salmon impression? And... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah. it just turned the game. Then it just turned it on the <laughs> Just mad, yeah. Like you said, uh, the Suarez incident <laughs> was that the same one that he um saved the, the um, was it oh, Ghana's, it's Ghana, yeah, Ghana's shot, yeah, 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 it was the same tournament. The nice little bit of sportsmanship he did there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was sent off, and then they they missed the penalty as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Another story yeah. for another list. 2014 yeah. was on my list. Have we got any others that we've not talked about yet? Um, the only one I've got is Euro 2000. Okay. Which I know England were again pretty pants yet. And I think we went out in the group, didn't we? <laughs> it was England, Germany went out and Portugal, Romania went through. But I just, I just oh, remember. Phil Neville. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it was. Well, I, 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 I remember the tournament as a whole. It was sort of like the the pinnacle of so many different players, like the peak of their careers. You had Zidane, you had Burkamp, Rui Costa. Um, I'm sure we had a few others, and it was just just an enjoyable tournament. And there was like, some really high scoring games. I think Spain beat Yugoslavia three four three. And then Yugoslavia drew three all with someone else. And obviously you had Portugal coming back from 2-0 down against England. And I know from an England point of view, that's not very enjoyable. But from a, if you look at it out, from an outsider's point of view, it was actually really high scoring and a good little tournament. And obviously France, France won it. Again, playing decent football. So yeah, that's why it's on my list. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Any more from yourself, Chris? Uh, just the last one that I got was um, the World Cup in 2002, where Senegal beat France and France didn't score a goal at all in the whole of the group section. and got yeah. eliminated as holders and um, and it ended up being a semi and Portugal got knocked out in the groups as well, which was a bit bizarre. And Republic of Ireland kept up there at that time. 
uh, record of pro progressing into the knockout stages in every single thing they got through to the finals on. And um, Argentina not getting through because England knocked them out. And the redemption of a certain, certain David Beckham, the penalty. Uh, I just thought it was a really, really sort of wacky, bit of a mad, mad one because you would never have guessed a set, a sort of third place playoff would have been South Korea and Turkey. You know, I wonder what the odds would have been at the beginning of that. And obviously, there was the whole daylight robbery of the Italy South Korea game as well, where there's the penalty that was never given and some strange acts of refereeing. But I always, I always remember this one. I know it sounds a bit mad, but um, I watched with someone the Denmark-England game. And on the night before, um, just changing sports, Lennox Lewis beat Mike Tyson. So they had the highlights of that and then the England match live. And it's just like <laughs> everyone was just so happy because obviously those two things happened. And um, it's just a shame about Ronaldinho's free kick. Slash shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my my only mem my my main memory of that World Cup was watching a game before going to school and then going to school late because the game went to extra time. <laughs> it was on at like seven o'clock in the morning or something. I yeah, remember I, one. I remember I, one day get going to the pub at early doors to watch Nigeria. It's England, and it was arguably one of the worst games I've ever watched a football in my life. I woke up at five o'clock to go to watch it and I'd work. I was just like, oh, wish I never bothered. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ireland had a good tournament as well, didn't they? They did, yeah. Under Mick McCarthy, um, yeah. Robbie Keane scored a last minute goal, I think, in one of the group games to send them through to the knockouts. And they, they took Spain all the way to Penos. Yeah, that's well. right. And um, Germany did what Germany did. Was one nils, one nils, and one nils in the knockout stages. For me, though, that that England team was a really good team. It that was, was the, yeah. That was the one where we should have done better. Right, well, it, it was there for the taking, wasn't it? Really, they had all the stars in that in that squad, in that first team. Yeah, they they had all the players to do it, but they fell short. It was a it was a real shame that one. Sadly, dead. Yeah, so that was my one. Fair Ooh. enough, all right. Thanks very much for those gents. Frank de Boer speelt de bal. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. And we're going to move on now to Ant's entry for the good, the bad, the obscure. All right, I've gone well. Sort of obscure this week. Have you heard of uh, Fyodor Sherenkov? No, I haven't. Oh. So he he was spotted as a kid by Spartak Moscow, and he um, he got promoted to the first team by legendary coach Konstantin Beskov in 1977, and he he stood out because he had this amazing amazing vision he could read the game like no one else he possessed this technical ability to perform passes that no one could predict and uh beskov took the youngster on his wing he started promoting short passing at spartak and uh sharenkov 
fitted in straight away. He sort of became, they sort of built the team around him. He was quite a, was quite a slight built guy. It looked like he'd been blown away by the more physical opponents, but uh, he, he always found space to avoid tackles and create these sort of magical moves. And the Russians fell in love with him instantly, even like rival fans of Dynamo Kiev and CSKA Moscow normally loathed any of Spartak's players. He was just he was just this sort of like modest character, really. And despite being one of the biggest superstars in Soviet football, he, he never really changed as a person. He sort of he never pushed an opponent. He never he never kicked out. Never raised his voice. And he, he couldn't understand why he was so popular. And even even his daughter never fully appreciated his his greatness because he didn't act like a star. Uh, anyway, so with with Spartak with uh, Beskov and Cherenkov, they, they became the most attractive team in the country by distance. Uh, however, not the most successful. Many times they sort of lack this killer instinct and they finished runners up. Uh, during 13 years in the Soviet Championship between 1978 and 1990, Cherenkov won only three league titles, while um, Valery Lobanovsky's Dynamo Kiev were crowned champions six times during the same period, because they were just this well-oiled Kiev machine that outpowered sort of all the technical, you know, arty-farty, tiki-taki of Spartak. And this was kind of the main reason why Cherenkov never, um, never really played for the national team much. He, he never played at a World Cup or even a European Championship. Um, Kiev's uh, Lobanovsky was in charge of the Soviet team for most of the 80s, so that's probably why he wasn't picked. <laughs> um, although Beskov was sort of a joint coach in 1982, but he, even he never really found found the room to put in uh, Shrenkov into his system. So he only, he only ended up getting 32 caps for the USSR, um, but he managed to score 12 goals from midfield. This is sort of another reason why his genius. He was never appreciated outside of Russia, um, because despite being arguably one of the most talented players in the world at the time, he remained relatively unknown. Although uh, Arsenal and uh, Aston Villa might might uh, remember his contribution, because their teams got knocked out of the UEFA Cup um, once in 1982 when Spartak thrashed Arsenal 5-2 at Highbury, and once in 1983 when uh, Spartak beat Villa at Villa Park 2-1. I think Shrenkov got both goals in that game. Villa was so impressed by him that they actually tried to sign him, but obviously the Soviets weren't going to let one of their star prizes go to the West. Uh, 1983 in general was an absolutely phenomenal year for Shrenkov. He was undeniably the best footballer in the country. He won the Soviet Union Player of the Year award, even though Spartak finished second in the league. He was this sort of, he was starting to become an important figure in the national team too, and um, he had scored twice in a five-nil demolition of Portugal for uh, to um, qualify him for the European Championship. But this this rise, this sort of new level of fame, added extra pressure and a psychological burden to him. And it was March 1984 when this really became apparent as Spartak prepared for a European tie with Anderlecht. Sharenkov started experiencing hallucinations, including imaginary dangers, uh, once where he thought the soup that they were eating was poison, um, and he even tried jumping out the hotel window. 
Uh, obviously, Spartak coach Beskov knew he couldn't play him, so he, he dropped him for the game. Um, Spartak lost the game, but that was that was the last thing that the players cared about. All, all they were all they were worried about was uh, Sharinkov's health. And he went for several tests. No one knew what was wrong with him. Um, and he didn't return to football until June. And um, it's testament to his uh, this sort of strong-willed nature that he had that he came back a better player every time. Every time he went for a test. And like I said previously, you know, he should have he should have played in a World Cup. Um, he was left out in '82. He was left out in '86. And he was left out in 1990. And and also uh, Euro '88 as well. Um, no one really knows why he, he, he wasn't picked. Um, some say that maybe it was the illness to blame, but obviously in 1982, no one knew about his health. It wasn't it wasn't an issue. Um, then after recovering from his first mental breakdown that he had in 1984, he um, started to become integral to the 1986 World Cup plans, but he again fell ill uh, during a winter training camp in Mexico. And uh, manager, the, the USSR manager at the time, Eduard Malofi, um, he got controversially replaced by Lobanovsky a couple of weeks before the tournament. So again, obviously he was going to build his team around the Kiev players and Spartak players. But at Spartak, he, he carried on flourishing, um, especially in the years between the major international tournaments. He led his side to a, a league and cup double in 87, won the championship again in 1989. And he was also again voted player of the season. Um, and then at the age of 30, with the World Cup looming in 1990, uh, he thought maybe this was his chance. But again, Lobanovsky chose not to call him up. And this was when he decided to try his luck abroad. Um, obviously, the, the Iron Curtain had come down. And he thought maybe he'd ever go abroad. But he said he only wanted to go abroad if he could go with Spartak's uh, star striker at the time, uh, Sergei uh, Rodionov. They, they each received uh, offers separately. And the only team willing to take them both was Red Star, a French second division uh, outfit. So this great Soviet talent both joined this tiny um, French outfit <laughs> and um, his, his psychological problems got even worse he uh, probably presumably because he was outside his comfort zone so he, he went back to his homeland again about a year later um, and then sort of between 91 and 93 he sort of shone sporadically again back at Spartak but 92 he spent completely out of football to be honest but whenever he was fit and capable of playing, fans came to watch him with smiles on their faces. And he, he was he was the footballer of the people. And he um, continued to be like that until 1994 when he retired. However, with, without football, he, um, he he disappeared from public life. He struggled again with more bouts of illness, uh, which became more and more serious. Um, and he attempted to take his own life on more than one occasion. And um, it, it it showed how much the public loved him because in October 2014, at the age of uh, 55, he uh, collapsed outside his home and he was pronounced dead uh, shortly after arriving at a local Moscow hospital. 
the autopsy found that he had a brain tumour. And thousands and thousands of people went to his funeral. Um, Spartak fans, Zenit fans, CSK fans, Dynamo fans, you name it. You know, the whole nation was there. Um, and it, it just sort of solidified him really as this sort of true symbol of, of, of his era. Um, and that's, yeah, that's basically all I've got. Wow, I've never heard of him. No, no that's, that's, that's a really good find. Yeah, uh, it's such a cool sad story. story. Yeah. Yeah, very sad. Yeah. Another talent that was unfortunately stopped from progressing to be great, wasn't it? It's like your Greek guy that you had down a few months back. Yeah, that's the Panagis. Yeah. I was almost expecting you to do another keeper. <laughs> no, no. I've, I've moved away from goalkeepers. <laughs> that's a good story, mate. Thank you for that. Okay, and this brings us on to our top 10. And this week we're looking at the top 10 English players who never earned a cap for England. And specifically, we're looking during the Premier League era, so 1992 onwards. So first of all, as I always ask, how did you find putting this list together? It's an interesting one, <laughs> like <laughs> usual. Um, the, the information was there and the players were there. It was just then... Shortlisting, yeah, shortlisting the massive list of players. Yeah. Well, I found I find it difficult just to get to the information. There's yeah. <laughs> I had to really go well, digging. For yeah, I mean, okay, the, the information each player perhaps isn't there, but there's one player that I've like left out because I couldn't dig up anything on it. That happened to me a couple of times actually. Yeah, and I just went. Look, I'm not. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll have to put him as a special mention instead. So when 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 you suggested this, Dan, I was like, oh Christ, there can't be that many players that. You know, haven't been capped by England that are half decent, and actually, yeah, there were quite a few. And also, we've got to tell our listeners as well that some of them we've left out because we've already spoken about them in past podcasts. Speak for yourself, Chris. <laughs> well, we've both I've checked on our list we... that, that you've spoken about a couple of them, and I've seen on on the list. I don't think I've, I'll be honest with you, there's not many I've got that we've spoken about before, actually. Like the only one I left off, I left off Matt Janssen, because I spoke about him recently. Yeah. There's yeah, no he, noble. He didn't make my list, uh, Janssen. Anyway, let's do it and see what we get. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chris, do you want to kick us off with your number 10, please? Yeah, sure. Num numero 10 for me is... Matthew Etherington. Okay. Okay, so he started his career at Peterborough, moved to Spurs um, whilst rejecting Man United. This was just for half a million in 2000. Struggled for first-team opportunities at Spurs, was transferred in 2003 to West Ham. This was part of the deal which sent uh, Freddie Canute the other way and some uh, cash of 3.5 million as well. So in those three years that Edwin was at Spurs, he made 48 appearances, scoring two goals. 
Uh, first two seasons at West Ham were in the Championship. He was a, but um, he's a regular for the full six seasons he spent there until he fell out of favour with the manager Gianfranco Zola at the time. There he made 195 appearances, scoring 18 goals. He then moved to Stoke for two million, again a regular for three seasons. Uh, he assisted more than uh, six Premier League goals, scoring five goals in two seasons out of the three out of those three seasons. At Stoke, he was used mainly as a set piece taker, and with his direct way of play from the wings, it was, it was a great attribute for Stoke's way of playing as well. He actually helped Stoke as well reach the FA Cup final in 2011. In 2014, he actually retired from football, made three appearances for the under-21s, and uh, that's why I put him there. I just think with his direct play, it could have been something that England were slightly short of, even to take maybe as a reserve player. Um, and his good left foot on set pieces and, like I said, crossing ability probably could have helped England out in those uh, tournaments. Yeah. And obviously not talking about his demons that he had as well, that is well documented as well. That's a good pick. Um, there might be there might be a couple of left-sided midfielders in my list as well. Yeah, I think I've um, got a couple. I'm afraid there's ten. <laughs> it seems like they're all going to be fighting for the same place if they all are playing at the same time. But it but it's it's sensible, isn't it? This where it's a position where England have a bit of a need, and if anyone's yeah. going to be worth a shot in the England team. That's one of the positions you're gonna you're gonna target. So yeah. I'm just basically just saying my list's um, a little bit the same in places. Uh, I think it's a good shout. Yeah, it's just a reliable player, very very steady pair of hands. Okay, and who's your number ten then, Ant? Well, it's funny we talk about left wingers because I've got a left <laughs> wing at number ten. Yeah, uh, one of my personal favourites actually back in the day, Ian Wone. Oh, yeah. okay, Forest. Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he was this sort of tricky little left winger. Um, he's one of the last players to emerge from the the Clough era, and he thought he was a bit of a rough diamond when he arrived. But Clough polished him up and made him a quite a decent left winger, and he stayed, I think, for the whole decade through the good and the bad times at Forest. And yeah, you know, he wasn't the paciest guy in the world, um, but what he could do was cross the ball. And like like what Chris said about um, Etherington, you know, and obviously England have always struggled with left-sided players. Um, he came close to a, a call-up under uh, Terry Venables as England uh, got ready for Euro 96. But in the end, he wasn't really convinced. Um, and he decided to bring in Steve Stone, also at Forest at the time. So Stone went to the 96 Euros and won't stay at home. But he made 200 appearances for Forest. And all I really remember from him is, apart from that he could cross it, was that he was brilliant at free kicks. And from vague memory of mid-90s England football, I can only think of Stuart Pearce and Gaza that could actually take a free kick for England. So I was quite quite surprised, really, that they didn't take him just for just for set-piece abilities. I mean, I, I'm... Surely he was probably a slightly better pick than Steve Stone, in my opinion. That, that's why he's, he's he's in my number ten. Yeah, we struggled on that left wing, didn't we? So yeah, it's a fair shout. Definitely had a shot of getting in there. That's why it was talked about, I suppose. 
Yeah. No, that's good. All right, my number 10, I've gone for Ben Me. I was considering him, but I didn't go for it. So he's a Man City youth product. Uh, he moved on to Burnley in 2011, and he's been a regular ever since. Uh, he was um, twice capped to under-21 level, and he's made over 319 Premier League appearances as part of a stubborn Burnley defence. Uh, so centre-back's the position where England have struggled recently. Uh, the likes of uh, Chris Small in Tyrone Mings, uh, Cody, Tarkovsky, Carl Walker, Michael Keane, Eric Dyer, Ben Godfrey, Ben White, Joe Gomez. They've all had opportunities playing centre-back for England, but Ben Mee has not had a look in. And not to mention the fact that the regulars, John Stones and Harry Maguire, their form's been pretty patchy the last couple of seasons. Uh, for me, Mee is very reliable. He's uh, very consistent. His positioning, defending, especially the six-yard box, is very good. He's well-organised. Uh, he's only 32 years old now still, but he's been around for ages. Uh, but he's a club captain and a leader. Uh, I think he's overlooked because he's not as fluid with the ball at his feet. But for me, defensively, I think he's reliable enough to at least have been a squad player for England, someone that can fall back on, who can slot in and be the glue that holds it together at the back. So I think it's a little bit unlucky he's been overlooked in a position where we've needed help over the last five years or so. Yeah, yeah. Shout. I like that one. Especially when you consider Tyrone Mings and Connor Cody, as good as they are, have been called up. Michael oh, yeah. Keane. Uh, Michael Keane. Yeah. Um, ben Mee's no, no better or worse than them. No, there's not. That's a good one. All right, so we're on to number nine, Chris. Number nine. Well, as you're probably thinking by what I was saying earlier about wingers, this is another winger. You could probably put him on the other wing, so it's all right. And this is Rule Fox. Oh, I've got him at number six. Well, oh, have you? Okay. Yeah. I'll, do, I'll do my bit. And then if you've got anything to add, is that all right? Yeah, yeah, it's fine, mate. Yeah. yeah. Go for it. Okay. Made his debut in 1987 for Norwich. Um, and then he really broke out, actually. It took him a few seasons, too, because he's a bit on and off. Uh, in the 92 93 season, assisting eight goals and scoring for himself. Uh, that helped um, Norwich finish third in the league that season and also UEFA Cup spot. And then the following season, he followed up with 11 assists and nine goals. And from that UEFA Cup run, they actually beat uh, Bayern Munich to reach the quarterfinals, if anyone remembers the Jeremy Goss uh, body in that. Yep. Um, in 94, he joined Newcastle for 2.2 million. Uh, Keegan at the time described him the best player in his position in the country and helped Newcastle to third again and a place in Europe. Then uh, he scored 10 uh, league goals the following season. But then after that, they Newcastle went to strengthen the squad and bought a certain Debeginola, which meant his options were very limited. So then he moved over to Spurs for 4.25 million in October 95. Uh, was a regular for the first couple of seasons. And then, bizarrely, David Junior had a move there. And again, that ended his five stint. Five years <laughs> stint there. He did actually win um, the League Cup, though, with Spurs in 99 as part of the squad. Um, and then he moved to West Brom. Uh, won promotion because they were in the championship at the time, then retired. But looking back on him, I always remember him being this like 
small winger, tricky, just an absolute nightmare. Didn't know which way he was going to go. We in and out a lot. Was very good again, a very good cross of the ball. And he he did. I'll put my hands up. He did actually make international appearances, but that was for uh, Montserrat. Montserrat, yeah. Um, and he actually became a scout for them as well for English-based players, like similar to what what's happening with Jamaica at the moment, uh, where they're bringing in a lot of English-based players to play for Jamaica. Um, yeah, and that's where he's finished now his career. And like I say, I just think he's been, but he's very unlucky, really, not to to get really anywhere close to to a call up by anyone. Um, I, I thought he was a, a lot better than some of the players that 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 were about at that time between the sort of Venables, Graham Taylor era, especially. No, I agree. Good shout. My memories of him, he was a very good winger, and uh, I'm surprised that he didn't go to Euro '92 in place of Tony Daly on the right wing. Yeah. Massively underrated, I thought, during his, his time at both uh, Newcastle and uh, Spurs. But it just made me laugh how Ginola took his place both times. Yeah, it's a bit <laughs> unfortunate, that, isn't it? <laughs> Don't know if you've got anything to add on that one, uh, and, but... uh, No, mate, I think you covered it, to be honest with you. Um, I, I'll be completely honest. Until I researched this, I'd completely actually forgotten all about him. Um, <laughs> he, has, he has become like one of football's forgotten men. He has, in my yeah. opinion, you know, no one talks about him anymore. No, no, and, and, and it's bizarre because he was he was such a talent. He really was a talent. Yeah, but, it's good uh, to watch, weren't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exciting. Every time you saw him with the ball, you wondered what he's going to do with it. Surprised he never made one of our good, the bad, the obscures. To be honest. Cause... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're on to your number nine, Ants. All right, okay. Um, I've gone with Mark Bright. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, he was like the turn of turn of the nineties. You know, bright and right for Palace were banging them in left, right, and centre, weren't they? Um, and obviously, right then eventually moved on to Arsenal. But um, you'd think in the early nineties for me, I, mean, I can't think off the top of my head who was playing up front for England at the time I think Alan Smith and yeah. Lineker was he still around at the time yeah yeah, yeah obviously was. Ian Wright was in the setup you, you, you'd think given how well Wright and Bright played together that they would have given him a chance at international level um, but he was um, Graham Taylor overlooked Wright Bright and maybe someone who might get a mention I don't not for me but um, uh, Lee Chapman for Euro 92 um, for, for, for Alan Smith, and it was at that point I think Bright decided to move to Sheffield Wednesday, um, who were obviously in the Premiership, and he, he he finished top scorer for them three seasons in a row. And he got he got seventy goals in five years, and even despite all that, Taylor and Venables didn't didn't seem bothered by him at all, which is slightly surprising, in, in my opinion. Yeah. It's tough to get in up front, though, isn't it? No, of it's course it is. But you know, that's why we have friendlies and why we have. Yeah, just must, looking at must, must have been a point where some of these strikers were injured. Your Sheringhams, your mm. Smiths, your Linekers. Yeah, just looking at the '92 squad, it was Nigel Clough, Lineker, Alan Smith, and a very young Alan Shearer. So yeah, you've got a point there. Yeah. No. See, I wasn't really around then, but. No, no, no. For me, for me, it makes sense. Well, I wasn't around, but I wasn't 
for me, it would make sense if Wright and Bright are doing well and Wright's been called yeah. up for England caps. Why not call up his strike partner? But I'm not no, sound logic. <laughs> no, yeah, sound logic. That's good. Right, my number nine, I've gone for Paul Davis. Oh, the Arsenal midfielder. Yeah, that's the one. Arsenal midfielder, maestro. So, um, just as an overview, he, he, between 1980 and 1995, he was at Arsenal. He made four, over 447 appearances for them. So, a uh, long stay at a top club. And I'll read you a, a description that I found on a website, which I thought was really good. Described as being a, a with a blessed and wonderful left foot, startling on pitch vision, unerring pass accuracy, renowned for his calmness in the heat of midfield battle, elegant, yet not unwilling to use force when needed. He was the perfect all-round midfielder. I like the... <laughs> you got off an Arsenal website, needed. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't have been a Spurs website. <laughs> he made his debut uh, age 17 in 1980 in a 2-1 victory over Tottenham. Oh, so, yeah, really? thrown at the deep end. And uh, he had to battle for his place in midfield in the Arsenal ranks alongside internationals Liam Brady, Graham Ricks, Brian Talbot and John Hollins. But by the time the 1981-82 season came around, he'd secured a regular first team spot. Uh, by the time that George Graham took over as manager, uh, Davis was the centrepiece of his Arsenal side. Uh, success followed. They won the League Cup in 1987. He actually received an England call-up in 1988, but he was on the bench for a match against Denmark. And then the, the following week, uh, in a match against Southampton, he clashed with Glenn Cockrell. And uh, he, in an off-the-ball incident, he punched him and broke his jaw. And uh, when the, it was caught on camera, he was given a nine-match ban and he was removed from the next England squad <laughs> And <laughs> when they made that ruling. So this hurt his chances of playing for England again, although he was clearly in contention and good enough. Um, he, he actually struggled to regain his place in the Arsenal side after that because the form of Michael Thomas and Kevin Richardson and sort of Arsenal be successful. And they won the first division title in 1989. But the 1990-91 season saw the rejuvenation of Davis. Uh, he was playing every game as captain and he led them to the title again. He was recognised being selected for the Football League 11 that season. In 91-92, he fell out with Graham after he crashed out to Benfica in the European Cup. Uh, he was frozen out of the team and had to train with the youth team for the next year. Uh, eventually he asked Graham for his release, but Graham reflected that Davis was actually a unique talent and that no one could dictate the pace of a game like Davis could. So Davis was reinstated in the first team. He fought, he fought his way back into the side and he became a calming influence on the Arsenal side. And they went on to win the FA Cup and the League Cup in 1993. Uh, 94 season, Arsenal went on to win the European Cup Winners' Cup. Now, in the final, they faced a star-studded Palmer side that had Brolin, Aspria and Zola and Arsenal. They had Ian Wright suspended and John Jensen and Martin Keown went down with injuries. So, Arsenal were underdogs. Uh, Davis was the centrepiece in midfield alongside Ian Selly and M Steve Morrow. <laughs> and uh, apparently... Davis was the best player on the pitch on that night, and Arsenal won 1-0. Now, um, that was pretty much the pinnacle of his career. He, did, he went on to play a few games for Brentford after that. But England's woes following the, um, the 1990 World Cup, going into Euro 92, and 
Davis was having such success with Arsenal, winning the league with them in 1991. I think that his continental passing style, it was something that was really missing from Graham Taylor's England side. And I think there's a place for him in that midfield. So that's why I put him on my list. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I remember him being in midfield with uh, David Rowcastle at Arsenal. It's meant to have been a bit yeah. of a magical partnership, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good one. Okay, so we're on to number eight now, Chris. Okay, so I've done obviously a left and a sort of right winger. I'll do a centre mid then. <laughs> so, Have you planned this? No, it's actually, <laughs> I quickly jotted down. Right? You got every position covered <laughs> apart from one. Apart from yeah. Um, so this one's Lee Clark. You know. he, he was a late scratch from my list, so very close to making it. He was he was uh, on my initial shortlist of about 45 names, but okay, cool. didn't, didn't make the cut. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so Lee Clark came from the Newcastle youth team, made his debut for Newcastle in 1990 and was part of the, the team that got promoted to the Prem in 93. Um, he was then part of obviously the the Newcastle team that got picked by Man United in the 95-96 season but unfortunately with the addition of David Batty who's a little bit more defensive minded that caused um, him to move for further opportunities so in 97 he actually moved to Sunderland um, he did actually make over 200 appearances for Newcastle in the seven years that he had at the club so at the time um, at Sunderland, he won the first division and got them promoted in 99. But his time was abruptly cut short whilst attending the FA Cup final of 1999 between Newcastle and Man United. He wore a T-shirt with the slogan, Sad Mac and Bastards on it. <laughs> Obviously not the best idea to do, which um, prompted him to get dropped by Sunderland. And then led to a move to Fulham. So at that time, Fulham were in the old Division 1 and he helped them get promoted as well to the Prem in 2001. He was a regular for three years and then moved back to Newcastle in the summer of 2005. Um, he was captain at Fulham at the time, but he wanted to learn his coaching badges, which he's now obviously gone on to management with. Uh, he, he did make 11 appearances for the under-21s for England and actually was called up for the Le Tournoi in 97. Um, but he was the only player um, not to actually have any minutes in the whole of the squad. You sure he didn't come on against Japan, Chris? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will put that on there. There is a tournament that, that England, Japan and Sweden were in. I can't remember what it was. I don't doubt you. I mean, there must have been. I don't. I, I'm not imagining it. Um, yeah, so he made no time and then he was never picked again. And obviously he was, he was an attacking midfielder at the time, but when he wants to get a bit more older, he was more of a centre mid, I think, um, even defensive mid. But yeah, I thought he would have probably fitted in perfectly. It seemed like he was unlucky lucky not to get his first cap at the tournament if he gave if Huddle gave everyone else some pitch time barring him <laughs> yeah yeah like I said it was a late scratch on my list I did do some reading up on him and it was really interesting the bit that you mentioned about um, the signing of David Batty yeah. where 
Clark himself lost his place in the side because of that. And he felt that because Batty was more defensive minded, it ruined the dynamic within the team. And that's what cost them the title that season. So I, I thought that was a really interesting point. He was always, he always obviously with what he, he did with the slogan on his t-shirt, he seems quite a straight talking kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that exactly. He he obviously loved Newcastle through and through. I always thought his move to Sunderland was a very strange one though, but to go to your rivals, but I guess needs must, isn't it? So <laughs> yeah. Right. So Ant, who have you got at number eight for us? Uh, I've gone with uh, Mr. Rod Wallace. My number seven. Ah, uh, okay. I'll uh, I'll start it off, and you can finish it because I haven't done many notes to him, to be honest. Um, he was he was the best of Southampton's three Wallace brothers. Um, and he won. He, he managed to win eleven under twenty one caps in nineteen ninety one, and then he made his big money move to Leeds, and it was like his speed and dribbling skill with this perfect complement to Lee Chapman's aerial presence and he notched 16 goal for Leeds uh, that season as as they won the league. Uh, Graham Taylor took note of this and that autumn called him up for for England but unfortunately he got injured in the preceding club game and missed his chance and he continued at Leeds uh, in in the Premiership and he won the uh, 1993-94 goal of the season with a George Ware-esque box-to-box run against Tottenham. Um, which I think, ironically, 10 years previously, his older brother had won the same award. Um, and I think they're the only two brothers to win to win goal of the season in football history. And then in 1998, he uh, he moved to Rangers on a, on a Bosman. And his uh, strike rate pretty much doubled. And he won five major trophies there. And everyone, all the fans were calling for him to have a cap. But uh, it, he kind of sort of a bit bit sort of out of sight out of mind kind of philosophy i think and uh, obviously he didn't he just ne- never made a cap and you know i think it's hard to get in up the front end for england but surely one cap and graham taylor must have seen something in him to call him up back in 92 so that's why he's yeah. in my list yeah yeah no, that's a great shout yeah i've one wasn't he why i didn't get called up even earlier in the 90s when he won the title of leeds to be honest, before his Rangers, uh, yeah, scored 27 goals in his first season at Rangers. Not bad. Wow. From a winger slash forward. Yeah, but it's the Scottish League. It doesn't matter, <laughs> does it? Yeah, you can only play, play in front of, isn't it? <laughs> and he, yeah, in that first season at Rangers, they won domestic treble, then followed the second year by winning a double. His, he was scoring one every other game at Rangers. So, very odd. Like I said, it probably was outside our mind, wasn't it? Probably a little bit. But then at that time, that was probably one of England's strongest areas. Yeah, yeah, that, again. Home, and you had Sutton who was waiting in the wings as well before he took himself out of the equation, Shearer and... Les Ferdinand. Les Ferdinand. Yeah. Paolo, right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, surely if you're playing against a minnow, against San Marino, at least give him a run out, see what he can do, or you know, give him a cap or something. But... Well, on that note, my number eight pick is Dalian Atkinson. Ah, oh, considered him. Yeah. Considered him quite a lot, but uh, he just missed it for me. Yeah. Okay. Just, uh, yeah. Great talent. 
absolutely great talent. All right, so he, uh, he started off his career at Ipswich Town in 1985, and uh, he immediately caught the eye with his speed and his power, and notably he got a hat-trick against Middlesbrough in a side that had Gary Pallister at the heart of its defence. Uh, Ron Atkinson then swiftly signed him for Sheffield Wednesday for £450,000 in 1989, and he scored 10 goals in 38 league games in a struggling Wednesday side that was ultimately relegated. And after they were relegated, um, his reputation, though, was intact and he was sold to Real Sociedad for a fee of £1.7 million back in 1990. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And uh, in the La Liga, he scored 12 goals in 29 appearances. And then in 1991, he was reunited with Ron Atkinson at Aston Villa for a fee of £1.6 million. And he formed a strike partnership with Dean Saunders and uh, together they fired Villa to second place in the first Premier League season. He also picked up the goal of the season award thanks to a solo run from inside his own half against Wimbledon. It was uh, capped off with a lovely chip over the goalkeeper. Now, um, it was also used occasionally by Atkinson on the wing as a means to get more talent onto the pitch and utilise Atkinson's skill set in other ways. Now, he actually started on the wing in the 1994 League Cup final against Manchester United and he opened the scoring as Villa went on to lift the trophy. It was after this, though, that Atkinson started to suffer some injuries and uh, he had a dipping club form. Uh, Villa had a new manager come in, Brian Little, and he decided to sell Atkinson to Fenerbahce, and he joined them in 1995 for a fee of £1.7 million. He scored 10 goals in 21 games there, but he failed to settle down in Turkey. And then his career finished with short spells with Man City and then also in Saudi Arabia and South Korea. I've got a couple of quotes from um, teammates, Tony Daly and Sean Teal, where they described Atkinson as too quick, too strong, better in the air than anyone else, and a great finisher. When he was on form, he was virtually unstoppable. So I think the thing with Atkinson is a bit inconsistent, but at his best, he was frightening. Uh, he did receive an England B call up in 1990, but he didn't make any appearances for the senior team. But uh, if he was in good form... And he is able to play on the wing. I've just got to believe he's a better option than the likes of Andy Sinton, Tony Daly, Nigel Clough that were playing for England under Graham Taylor at the time. So that's why I've got Atkinson on the list. Yeah, no, it's a good shout. Yeah, fantastic shout that is. Yeah. Right, Chris, did you say that um, your number seven was Rod Wallace? I did indeed, yeah. Okay, so that means I'm coming to you, Ant. What's your All number right. seven, please? Um... I've gone with, and I know we spoke about him before, but I've, I've gone with big, big Kevin Nolan. Number oh, okay. Seven. Yeah. All right. I mean, I know, I know he's a bit of a, put it politely, a low rent Frank Lampard, wasn't he? But <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> he he still had a respectable career in the Premiership. Yeah. I mean. I think you played something like 375 games in the Premiership and he didn't get a single England call-up. And obviously, you know, the midfield at the time was your Beckham, your Scholes, your Lampard, your Gerrards. But we all know Gerrard and Lampard didn't work very well together. You know, why not give Nolan a, a slight try? And, you know, this is a guy that, he, you know, he's playing for a good Bolton team that was playing in Europe at the time. And he, he went to a, a Newcastle team that were doing okay in the premiership i think and then again give him a west ham 
and you would have thought i think by the time about euro 2004 rolled around he wasn't even mentioned despite the fact that he was playing in europe for bolton and scoring a fair amount of goals for midfield you you think for me he would have been a better option than say someone like kieran dyer who was constantly injured and somehow made the england team every single time um so that that's why i had to include him and I've, i'm not going to go into all his history and his stats because we've sp- spoken about him before but i think he should have at least had a cap in my opinion i mean there's that moment wasn't there in like hodgson could have probably called him up even 2016 when we were looking for a leader so i think captain uh west ham wasn't it when noble wasn't about i think he was captain at every club he went to i think yeah well exactly he's had their arm about yeah i think he's been a very underrated player isn't he he's always the guy this sort of the jack in the box midfielder last guy to come in just as the ball has been played in a sort of very very similar to your Lampards and Gerrard's that was probably the only problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying he's better than Lampard, no, he no, wasn't, but not. maybe he could have worked better with one yeah. or, one or the other. Yeah. It, they never tried it, so we won't no. know. Yeah, yeah, definitely a, an unfashionable player. I think uh, he suffered because of uh, the way he played and the fact yeah. he was at Bolton. But yeah, you can't argue with his record, you're right. Maybe if Sam Allardyce had become England manager a bit earlier. Well, definitely, <laughs> he, he might have got, got a pick. Definitely. Oh, true. True. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number seven, I've gone for Steve Froggart. He's five. Another one I considered, but I left off. Number five for you, Chris. Yeah, yeah, carry on, mate. Okay, so yeah, like we've said before, uh, left wingers might be a popular theme. Uh, <laughs> He started off his career at Aston Villa uh, in 1991. He made his debut. He uh, he broke through uh, in the 92-93 season, where he's um, part of the supporting cast that helped Villa to second place, and he also helped the side that left that lifted the League Cup in '94. He was actually sold though to second tier Wolves for one million pounds though in 1994, uh, but he returned to the Premier League with Coventry for a one point nine million pound move in 1998. He was the first choice at Coventry, and he found their fast-paced counter-attacking style the perfect formula to showcase his abilities on the wing. Uh, in November '98, he scored a memorable goal against Everton, where he, he broke out from his own half at pace and before he got to the edge of the box and let fly into the top corner. He also got a memorable assist in that game with an unorthodox cross-field volley from the left wing <laughs> that assisted Darren Hooker before a goal. Uh, impressive performances led to some media speculation. He might be the backup to Graham Lasseau and Andy Hinchcliffe for Glenn Hoddle's 98 World Cup team, but he didn't actually make the cut for the squad. But his good form continued into the next season. And in 1999, Kevin Keegan called Froggart up to the senior squad as he was a natural left-sided winger. And that's what Kevin Keegan wanted to bring to the to the squad. He was called up again for the next friendly, but unfortunately he had to pull out through injury. It was uh, something he couldn't recover from. So he made his final appearance in February 2000. Anything to add, Chris? Keegan was going to put him in for the two-legged playoff match against Scotland. I thought that's going to be a, a bit of a interesting debut if he came on such a high-pressured match. Always <laughs> <laughs> at cap, but no, I think you hit everything on on there, mate. With him, just a very very unlucky career. He just had to retire at 28. 
Yeah, it was. Because I remember he had a, he struggled a little bit in his early career, but when he did move to Coventry, his performance level was uh, in, increasing okay, rapidly. Yeah. And he was really putting it together, especially linking up with the likes of Huckabee making runs in front of him. It was, yeah. uh, they had a quite exciting team at the time. Down to attack him, weren't they? Yeah, nice. yeah. All right, so uh, that brings us on to your number six, Chris. Number six, yeah. Okay, so I've got Mark Albrighton. Oh, I've got him a little bit higher. I've got him higher. What have you got? That's um, my number two. Ooh, oh, I'm, I'm not that high. Uh, number four, I've got him. Well, Shall we wait for that one then? No. Yeah, I'll hold that one back. Yeah. Okay. All right. Who's your number six, Ant? Uh, Rule Fox, I had. Oh, okay. Back to me again then. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number six, I've gone for Aaron Wambisaka. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. So he, uh, he obviously broke into the Palace team in 2018, age 20, and immediately stood out with his speed, defensive awareness, tenacious tackling, his boundless energy up and down the flank. And it must have been very refreshing to the Crystal Palace fans as their team had become increasingly workmanlike um, over that period. He was voted their Young Player of the Year in 2017-2018 and their Player of the Year the following season, 18-19. And it was in June 2019 he signed for Man United for a fee of £45 million. Now, with those defensive qualities and the fact that um, by the end of the 1920 season he made more tackles than any other Premier League player, I'm just very surprised that he's not been selected for England for his defensive capabilities. Now, he's not, he's not had the best season this year so far, admittedly, but um, for me, he should already have featured. He has been called up to the squad, but he's had to pull out through injury. But defensively, I think he's uh, when he's in good form, he's probably the best we've got as the defensive right-back. Unfortunately, there's a lot of competition for places at right-back now with the likes of Reese James and Trent Alexander-Arnold with his exceptional attacking qualities. It's tough to get into the squad, but the fact that he could go and play for Congo, who he has represented at under-20 level, uh, I think that England should have um, called him up and got him playing already. 100% agree with you with that. Yeah. yeah I, I think he's been scapegoated, to be honest, a lot this season as well. My personal opinion, I think he's not somebody that like Trent that will charge up forward. He's, he's an incredible defense, you know, fullback, just the old style fullback. And I just think he's been left in the lurch too much by by the Man U's midfielders and other defenders, in my opinion. I, I, I don't, he has made errors, but I don't think it's all on him. The results are certainly not all on him. No, but people turn very quickly, don't they? Like, <laughs> last, like you hear some fans like beginning of last season saying, oh, he's, a fan, he's the best defender England's got. And now he's like, suddenly gone rubbish. You don't just do that straight up. It's, it is odd that Southgate hasn't called him up when you consider yeah. that, you know, it's not as if Southgate's playing Trent Alexander-Arnold Trent Alexander -Arnold every, every week, uh, every mm. international, you know, for his attacking presence. So you're thinking, well, what does he want it right back? Mm. Carl Walker's fairly defensive. He's not that attacking, really. So yep. you think well, you think Wan-Bissaka would be in with more of a shout than Trent, but Trent I'd, seems to be getting the call up. I'd put him ahead of Trippier as well. 
I mean, yeah. Trippier as well. Yeah, I forgot about Trippier. As interestingly, I was reading when I was reading up on him for this list. I come across a website which, uh, at the end of the 1920 season, they rank Warren Bazaka as the tenth all-time best Premier League right back. Wow! <laughs> They'd seen enough. They said to oh. cement that position. You want from a right back, though, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's good, though. Right, so I think we're on to Chris's number five. I'm a Stevie Frogger. <laughs> okay, right. And have you got someone new? I have, I have got someone new, yeah. <laughs> um, I've gone with Mark Atkins. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I haven't got a lot on him because I couldn't find much, but he was... Um, he was signed back in 1988 by Blackburn, um, and he sort of became this integral part of their their midfield on their rise up to the up to the Premiership. Um, and he, he went from being right back to midfielder, but um, I think his his role in their in their title win is a little bit understated because everyone everyone assumes David Batty was. Tim Sherwood's partner all season, but it was actually Mark Atkins that played uh, I think 34 matches and it, because Batty was injured. Um, and he scored he, he scored six goals that season, including the important ones against Liverpool and Southampton. And I just I just think it's a bit odd that you got this midfielder that played 34 games for the for the title winning season, and presumably he was playing many games in the season before when Blackburn were also a decent team. That he, he didn't get a get a call up for England, being playing for one of the best teams in the country at the time. But I, I did actually do a little bit of research, and Tim Sherwood didn't actually get a call up until 1999, which was also quite surprising. Yeah, that's surprising. So it's 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 just odd, you know. It wasn't like a a one season wonder Blackburn. Blackburn were pushing around for at least a year or two years before they actually won the title. Yep. from a from a decent midfield, so I'm um, I'm surprised he didn't get at least a cap. Uh, unfortunately, after they they won the title, he he moved on to Wolves in the first division, so I think that probably limited his chances after that. Yeah, but that, that's why I put him so high up. He was the forgotten man at Blackburn, wasn't he? He, he was. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's quite versatile, I think, as well. He played a few different positions for Blackburn. He's a good player. I only really found him because I thought I couldn't remember Tim Sherwood getting an England cap, so I googled it, <laughs> and he did. So I was like, "All oh, right, okay." <laughs> he certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, number five, I've gone for Gary Parker. Okay. Exaster okay. Villa. Yeah. So uh, he started off his career. He was in a youth team at Queen's Park Rangers, playing under um, his manager at the time was George Graham there in the youth team. And his, um, the club manager at Queen's Park Rangers was Terry Venables. But it was uh, playing Sunday League football at county level when he was scouted by David Pleat, who offered him the opportunity to play first team football in the top flight for Luton Town. So he went to Terry Venables. Uh, Venables said he wanted to keep him and guarantee his apprenticeship, uh, but he reluctantly agreed to release Parker. And he went on to make his debut for Luton Town at Old Trafford, aged 17, in 1983. 
and he made 42 top fight appearances for Luton over the next three seasons, as well as an FA Cup semi-final appearance against Everton. He was a squad rotation player, and he played in a few different positions across midfield. But as he began to mature, he realised he was not going to be able to start in his preferred position, which was central midfield. Uh, they had uh, England player Ricky Hill start in there, and he wasn't going to be selected ahead of him. Uh, teammate at the time, Brian Horton, left Luton to become the manager of Hull, and he took Parker with him to start in his midfield. And there, Parker thrived, and his performances earned him six caps at under-21 level. So after two seasons, he returned to the top flight as he was signed by Brian Clough for Nottingham Forest in March 1998 for a fee of 260000 and he helped uh, Nottingham Forest finish third in the first division that season. So he's playing for a top English team under Brian Clough and alongside England internationals, Stuart Pearce, Des Walker, Neil Webb, Steve Hodge, Nigel Clough. And Parker made over 100 appearances over the next three seasons. And he, uh, he picked up uh, two League Cup winners medals, uh, an FA Cup runners-up medal. And uh, he also won the Four Members Cup. So that was the Simod slash Zenith Data Systems Cup, while the English clubs were banned from the from Europe. Uh, when Neil Webb departed to Man United, Parker filled in that playmaker role in the centre of midfield. Uh, when Webb left, uh, they actually signed John Sheridan as the replacement for six hundred fifty thousand. But due to Parker's performances, Sheridan was sold on after just three months after, and making just one appearance. So Parker had the spot. But um, over the next couple of seasons, uh, it was Scott Gemmell and Roy Keane emerging through the ranks, and they decided to accept an offer of £650,000 from Aston Villa in 1991. So as the Premier League era got underway, Villa were league leaders for much of the season, and they eventually finished second, with uh, Parker making 37 league starts that season at the heart of midfield, alongside England midfielder Kevin Richardson. Uh, after three years at Villa, he moved on to Leicester, where he fronted a change in playing style, uh, Leicester were very much a long ball playing team, but they began to become a more passing outfit under Mark McGee. And uh, he helped them get promoted back to the top flight. And he was voted the club's player of the year. In the 96-97 season, Leicester surprised many with their top half finish. And they also won the League Cup, which was the third League Cup winner's medal for Parker. Uh, he did make an appearance for England B, and he was actually called up to the England squad by Graham Taylor but he ended up being on a standby list and didn't make an appearance for the national team. Uh, interestingly, while he was with England in a hotel one night, um, former teammate Nigel Clough knocked on his door in the hotel and he said that his dad had asked him to apologise on his behalf for selling Parker. At the time, Brian Clough said he was listening to the wrong people at the club and he really regretted selling Parker. Uh, Parker was a very tidy passer of the ball. He was a playmaker. And I think he was overlooked because he wasn't quick and he wasn't a hard tackler. But he played for very good teams and he helped them to be successful, which I think shows his qualities. Now, ahead of Parker in the England team at those times, you had the likes of Carlton Palmer, Jeff Thomas, Nigel Clough, Paul Stewart, Neil Webb, David Batty and Dennis Wise. And for me, a more cultured playmaker and a passer of the ball, Gary Parker, would have been a much better choice for England. That's why I've put him at number five on my list. That's very good. I totally yeah, forgot yeah. about his earlier career. But yeah, very, very good reason to put him probably higher, to be honest, Dan. I was going to say, yeah. that's your number five. <laughs> I dread to think what your next four are going to be. To be fair, yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny because when I when I put him on my list, I had him down at number ten, I think, originally. But then I, I realised that he played in very good Forest team and a very good Villa team, and he helped them to be successful. So I had to bump him up the list. Yeah, changed Leicester's play style of play as well. So yeah, yeah, fair enough. Right, I think we're up to number four now, Chris. Yeah, we we sure are. And now I've got a left back for you, John Ooh. Beresford. Uh, okay, another one that uh, just uh, got cold at the last minute. Oh, okay, no problem. Uh, yeah, so his breakthrough happened in Barnsley in 1986 before a move to Portsmouth, where he spent three seasons. Most notable moment for Portsmouth was missing a penalty in the 1992 FA Cup semi final shootout versus Liverpool. That summer, Liverpool actually agreed to sign him. But he failed a medical. So at, at that time, uh, Kevin Keegan was at Newcastle. So he swooped in to sign in. They were in the old Division One at the time. Helped him get promoted to the Premier League the following season. Um, him and Warren Barton, with the attacking tendencies, for helped Newcastle get to runners up in the Premier League for two consecutive seasons where he was a regular. A move to Southampton in 1998 mustered only 17 appearances in four years, which was then pop, um, followed by a lone spell at Birmingham, which only had one appearance. He then moved into non-league football, then retired. Uh, he made two appearances for England B, and under Graham Taylor, and a call-up away versus Turkey in March 92, 93, sorry. Um, Beresford thought he would actually start with regular um, left-backs, Pierce and Dorigo injured, but Graham Taylor actually decided to play winger Andy Sinton in that role instead. So that was as close as he got to a cap, but got replaced by Andy Sinton in a totally different role than he usually plays. Um, but yeah, so I thought I'll, I'll have him there because he, he was quite an attacking left-back. And he's again another one that was just a very safe pair of hands, and just got gone with the job just quietly and did 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 what need, needed to be done. Yeah, yeah, enough. Shout. Definitely had a great run with Newcastle, didn't he? He did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During that era with Keegan, he really he really thrived. I think. Mm, yeah, good one. Interested. Right. Um, who's your number four, Rance? Uh, Mark Albrighton. Uh, yeah. Ah, okay. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll save that for your, your number two. Yeah, okay. Right, my number four. I've gone for Scott Sellers. Okay. So he um, started off his career at Leeds United in 1983, and he made 76 appearances until he transferred to Blackburn Rovers in 1986. Uh, Blackburn in the second tier at the time, and he had a um, six-year spell there, making over 200 appearances. And he earned a reputation as an exciting winger with a great cross. And uh, on the left side there, for Blackburn as a part of a very attacking team, he helped them get promoted through the playoffs at the third attempt in 1992. He gained caps at under-21 level, uh, but at the end of that season, he was snapped up by Leeds, who had just won the first division at the time. They signed him for a fee of £800,000. 
Now, the move didn't actually work out because uh, the form of Gary Speed kept him out of the team. So he's actually sold it later in that season to Newcastle United. And he was uh, £600,000 to form part of Kevin Keegan's team. Uh, he delighted the Newcastle fans with his delicate passing, excellent vision, his dead ball skills, and he helped them to promotion in '93. His form continued in the Premier League, where he was an integral part of the entertainers with his link-up play of uh, Cole, Beardsley, and, as you mentioned, Chris, Rule Fox. And he helped Newcastle take the Premier League by storm as they finished third. Now, he suffered a bad cartilage injury, and uh, by the time he recovered, David Giller had arrived at Newcastle and he kept him out of the team. <laughs> He's so, a killer, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> yeah, it was sold on to Bolton, who had arrived in the Premier League, and uh, he added a bit of quality to their ranks. Uh, they had spells at uh, Huddersfield, AGF, Aarhus in Denmark, and Mansfield Town before he called it a day. But I just felt that um, because he was part of a, a very uh, excited attacking Blackburn team, and then he went on to be part of the Newcastle team. He was playing well at the top level. And he had a natural left-sided player there. I just find it hard to believe that he didn't get a call-up at that time in the 93-94 sort of era. So I thought that uh, in, a pro- in a position that's uh, left wing, but a big problem for England, I think Sellers was just the ticket back at that time. There's definitely a theme running throughout this list. <laughs> yep. Left, left-sided players who didn't play for the big clubs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're on to the top three. Chris, who have you got for us at number three? I've got David May. Snap. Okay. Okay, so I've got May was a graduate by the Blackburn youth team. And we actually started playing right back before he moved to uh, centre-back. He helped get Blackburn promoted into the Premier League um, and helped them come second in the 93-94 season. But he actually then moved to Manchester United after contract issues with Blackburn for £1.2 million in 1994 and then watched his former team win the title. The following season, he won the double with Man United um, but then with new signs to the club like Stam, Jonsson and Brown coming up from the youth team, his chances to play considerably decreased. Unfortunately, May didn't get a medal when Man United won the historic treble as he only played six matches that season. After making a handful of appearances in the next four years and a loan spell at Huddersfield Town, May moved to Burnley for a free transfer. Uh, he spent a season there and then retired. Um, but during his time at Man United in 1997, again, Hoddle did call him up for a friendly versus Mexico, but was an unused sub. Uh, Hoddle preferring a partnership of Keown and now England manager Gav Southgate instead. That's all I've got for that. So I thought, um, personally, as a person who's been obviously a Blackburn at quite high standard at Man United, even more higher level, um, managed to keep his place. I would have thought he would have at least have got a cap somewhere along the line, like Ant said about some other players, even against a sort of a small minnow team trying to sort of see what other players have got. But obviously at that time, central defenders were quite a, a lot there, wasn't there? There's was a lot of competition. Yeah. So I think it was just at the wrong time, wrong place at the wrong time for him. 
probably a couple of years earlier, he might have been able to have got himself a place, but unfortunately not when you had a young, young, the young upstarts, and then you had Adams still there, and I guess old Campbell would have been coming through. Keown, Keown, and and Gareth Southgate, you're going to struggle, aren't you? Yeah, no, that was kind of my logic behind it. It's funny as well, because at that time, there was definitely a feeling that um, the players from the top teams always got selected for England. Yeah. And then May was the one that was overlooked, and I, I thought that was a little bit odd. Yeah, I mean, they even picked, I think, um, Steve Howie as well over that period, if I remember rightly. He was in the 096 squad. Yeah, he was, yeah. But yeah, very, very odd. Okay, uh, for my number three, I went for Steve Bruce. Oh, it was my number one. I thought you were going to leave him out, Chris. <laughs> you never leave Steve Bruce out. You told me you were leaving him out. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's my number two. Okay, sounds like we're all going to have something to say about Steve Bruce. <laughs> You're going to start us off, Dan. And we'll... Yeah, I'll start us off. So, yeah. Started his career off at Gillingham in 1979. He made 205 appearances before moving on to Norwich in 1984. Uh, he made uh, 141 appearances for them before he got his big move to Man United in 87. Now, um, he developed into a solid, dependable, all-round player, and he was characterised as a, an honest trier. He made the absolute most of his limited natural ability. It's a little bit harsh, but um, it was also perceived as lacking poise and grace, and he was criticised for his lack of pace, but he made up with it with his bravery and his willingness to play through pain, even playing through injury at Man United. And that's uh, that's what he was remembered by, largely. Uh, once in 1992, he was uh, sent back to the United team at short notice while he was waiting for an operation on a hernia, and he played through the pain once again. Uh, Alex Ferguson played compliment to his determination and heart and said his uh, fighting spirits and his motivational abilities were vital to the success of his team. Now, in his prime, he was particularly noted for his calm and deliberate passing of the ball and his ability to control it under pressure on his chest. Now, at the time, Mark Wright of Liverpool was said to be the only other centre-back who had the similar kind of abilities to Bruce in those areas. Uh, Bruce was an intelligent centre-back. He could read the game well. And it was no surprise that he quickly went into management shortly after his playing days came to an end. He actually had a, an unusually high goal scoring record for a centre-back, in particular one season where he managed to score 19 goals for Man United, which was a, a bit of an anomaly. He made over 400 appearances in top flight football in England and his partnership with Gary Pallister at Man United was touted by some, including Gary Neville in 2006, as being the best centre-back pairing in Man United's history. But at international level, he was overlooked and he lost out to the likes of Mark Wright, Terry Butcher and Tony Adams as linchpins of the England's defensive line. He was never really going to outplace uh, the likes of Des Walker, Martin Keogh and Gary Pallister, who were a bit more pacey. But um, as a defensive holding player, he definitely had something to offer. And he played at Man United, one of the top clubs, and during their most successful period. So I think that goes to show that Bruce definitely had something about him. He was actually approached by Jack Charlton to play for Republic of Ireland 
due to his mother being born in Northern Ireland, uh, which made him eligible. But Bruce declined the offer as it would have affected his eligibility for Man United in European competition under rules at the time. He would have counted as a foreign player. But I think that just goes to show more about his personality, being dedicated to his club and again, his leadership skills. I think uh, all round, although he might not have been the, um, he might have been a bit of a rough diamond in his early career. I think he definitely became a leader and a solid defensive player. And I definitely think he was overlooked for England. Yeah, totally agree. Got anything yeah. to add there, Han? Um, no, I think Dan's pretty much covered it. I mean, like you say, it's it's amazing that he never actually got a got a call up when you think. I think Keith Kell got so many caps <laughs> and. Neil Ruddock got caps yeah. and Gary Mather played a couple of times. Carlton Palmer, I think, even played in defence. And it's like, come on, call up Steve Bruce. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? I Cap- mean, captain so- of the biggest team in the, in, in the country at the time, winning stuff. It's yeah. Bizarre. Yeah. Got some yeah. funny stories about him as well. Uh, like, he started his career, like Dan said, and he was in the reserves, and he was actually the top scorer they had in the reserves. Engineering reserves before obviously getting promoted to the first team, and then he broke his own leg whilst trying to injure another player in 1983. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and also, um, in the FA Cup final, he refused to lift the trophy, didn't he? Because he didn't play in the final against Liverpool, he was injured, oh, right? Yeah, everyone was trying to get him to lift the trophy, he refused because he said he wasn't he didn't partake in it so. So he didn't feel like he earned the the honour, and I think that's what he was. He's a very honourable person, isn't he? Really? He, um, yeah, he's. I think he's throughout his career, even now. I think he's just this. He is Mr. Nice Guy that I don't think gets. Perhaps he doesn't get the appreciation that he should. Yeah. I mean, the the comments yeah. I read about him being sacked recently by Newcastle kind of topic. I think it's the, you know some of the, what some of the fans have said is disgusting, but yeah. He's, yeah. he's just, you know, he's a just seems to me like a genuinely nice bloke that just yeah. sort of the always gets the, the butt end of the stick. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I've got an excerpt from his book about um, being called up for England B. Uh, Bruce recalled that uh, Graham Taylor said, you're captain, by the way, but it's not my choice. It's Bobby's. For me, <laughs> you, you'll never be captain. In other words, I'll never give you the biggest accolade I, I have ever had. And the manager in charge was telling me I wasn't good enough in his eyes to have that role. It was obvious he didn't didn't like me. And when he became England manager, I didn't play again. He didn't rate me. Some managers don't like you, but I did find it strange. I'm surprised because you would have wow. thought that would have been somebody that Taylor would have liked. Perhaps that's he was too good. nice. Perhaps he was too nice a player. Uh, didn't want to. Maybe, maybe. And and also in '94, Bruce was actually called up by Terry Venables, but he refused because he declined it because he thought it was a, a sympathy cap. Because it was a friendly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, that red. Yeah, and that's sad. It's sad. I feel a bit sorry for him. Yeah, you got to when you're seeing everyone else being called up around him and you're thinking, well, I'm winning everything. Yeah, he won, he won the Cup Winners' Cup, three Premier Leagues, three FA Cups and two League Cups. 
Yeah. <laughs> Neil Ruddock gets a call up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keith Kerr, like you said. Yeah, I think that's the best one. Right. So, yeah, that's my number three. Chris, so who have you got number two? Yeah, my number two is Paul Walhurst. Oh, okay. okay. Mr. Versatility himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Has anyone got him first off? Or just no. Him? no. Okay, no worries. Uh, so he started his career at Man City as a trainee, but was frozen out. So he joined Oldham for 10K in 1988 and was part of the team that reached the FA Cup semi-final the following season. He attracted interest from big clubs and joined uh, Sheffield Wednesday for three quarters of a million to de be deployed as a defender. But in the 92-93 season, due to injuries to David Hurst and Mark Bright, he played up front and scored 12 goals in all co competitions in 12 games. This led to an England call-up in 93, but was injured and missed his opportunity. Chef Wednesday reached the final of both Cups uh, that season. And for one Cup final, he played as a striker. And for the other one, the League Cup, he played as a defender. After a bust-up with then Sheffield Wednesday manager Trevor Francis, he was then sold to Blackburn for 2.7 million. He became a regular at Blackburn's title-winning team, playing in midfield mostly. He then joined Crystal Palace. He, he just won promotion in 1997, but unfortunately got relegated the following year and played one further season before a move to Bolton for 800k in January 1999. Warhurst earned promotion to the Prem with Bolton. Again, he's then now playing in midfield in 2001 and became a regular, making 25 appearances the following season, but injuries hampered any further appearances. Moves to Stoke, Swindon, Chesterfield, Barnsley, Carlisle, Grimsby and Blackpool, Forest Green and some other non-league clubs came in before he retired. I think the main problem that he had, which Ant hit straight on the head, was he's that versatile that I think as a manager, they didn't know where his strongest position was. And I think that I think he's a jack of all trades. Surely he's the kind of guy you want on on a international. You sport, almost think it? that, but probably that's probably was what was going on. You know, uh, he had eight eight appearances for the under twenty ones as well. But yeah, that's why I put him at number two. I mean, to come out off the bat and score twelve goals in twelve games when you've never played striker in professional <laughs> professionally. It's a fantastic achievement. And it started that weird thing like um, where defenders played up front because Leicester did that a few times with Steve Walsh and Matt Elliott. They they transferred, didn't they? And Dion Dublin went the other way and became a defender in his later career. And Which way did Chris Sutton go? He went a certain way, didn't he? Yeah, he went defender, didn't he? He went yeah, striker yeah, defender, yeah. yeah. It's funny that it sort of went a bit weird for a while. Everyone started becoming really versatile. But yeah, I put him at number two because I thought after that run, like you said, there's abundance of strikers. But when you've got someone hot on form like that, you've got to give him, try and give him a try. But I think he had that, his uh, five minutes of fame with the 12 in 12. And I think it didn't quite work out since. 
but then he did win the title with Blackburn as a midfielder. So that was like another position he played. So like I said, you could have put him anywhere, probably. Mm, impressive. Right. Okay. Uh, my number two is Mark Albrighton. Oh, yes. So whereabouts did you guys place him on your list? He was my number four. I placed him number six, but he was a very sort of, I, I was half tempted to put him higher, but I, I thought the others were slightly had a better. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine. So Albrighton, he started off with Aston Villa. Um, he was a Villa fan growing up, and he was inspired by Premier League players such as Benito Carboni, Robert Perez, and David Beckham. Broke into the Villa team age 19, and he was a pacey winger at the time. And immediately, his wing play earned him calls to be selected for England. Uh, this didn't materialise though, and he failed to consistently nail down a first team place. And after uh, throat and appendix operations ruined his final years at Villa, he was loaned out to Wigan, and his contract was not renewed by Villa. Leicester picked him upon a free transfer in 2014, and it wasn't until the back end of his first season with Leicester that he broke into the side, playing as a wing back, which wasn't his natural position. Uh, his hard work and his tenacity personified the fighting spirit of the side as they went on to win seven of their last nine games and complete uh, the great escape and survive in the Premier League. The following season, Albrighton was selected on the wing by Claudio Ranieri, and it was his crossing ability which began to shine again as Leicester went on to complete a miracle of becoming Premier League champions, which I'm sure I've never mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> But once again, there were calls for him to be selected for England as a result of his wing play. Um, not just his crossing ability, but also his work rate, getting up and down the wing and his ability to slot in as a wing back. He was loved by Leicester fans for his hard work, his consistency, and especially his appreciation of the defensive side of the game, which is rare for a winger. Also, whenever he gets the ball, his first instinct is to look up and feed the ball to the strikers which is very useful when you're trying to be a direct and counter-attacking side. Uh, in the build-up to the 2018 World Cup, uh, the newspaper The Sun wrote an article claiming that Albrighton must have ran over Gareth Southgate's cat <laughs> as a reason for him not being selected in the squad. They held him as the best cross of the ball in the Premier League and they cited his fitness, his work rate, and the fact that he's never won a cap is just a crime. <laughs> Now, in the following season, 2019 to 2020, on Match of the Day, Micah Richards highlighted Albrighton's work rate, his tracking back, and his ability to sense danger. And again, he questioned why Albrighton had never won a cap for England. Now, for me personally, uh, he's the best crosser of a ball since David Beckham until Trent Alexander-Arnold broke into the England side. Now, England have frequently been accused of not having a plan B, and I think that the direct nature of Albrighton as a facilitator at bringing strikers into the game is a bit of a mistrick on England's part. So I think that uh, there was definitely a role that Albrighton could have played. I think he should have been selected for England. Yeah, he's just pure energy, isn't he? Every time he comes on, he's one of the biggest impacts I've ever seen of a sub that you can have. The number of times he's changed games just by the way he's what like I say his work rate, his tenacity as well when he hasn't got the ball, just doesn't give up. And I think that just shows 
just him as a person, doesn't he? He could have just, have, you know, gone into the abyss, but he, he fought for his place at Leicester, found a place, and he's, I mean, his assists are incredible for the amount of minutes he plays. He's just sort of <laughs> nearing double figures each season. He's uh, <laughs> certainly Mr. Consistent, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. That's a good word for him. And especially that, that title winning season where I think he played every every game, didn't he? Yeah. When they won the league. Um, Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I think he was he was Ranieri's boy. Uh, well, most of them are Ranieri's boys, but free <laughs> um, transfer as well. I think Ran, Ranieri yeah. saw something in him that perhaps other managers before him didn't. But yeah, he's, that's why he's, he was as high up as four on my list. You're right. You should have at least had a cap by now. Yeah. Right. I'm so not day Ian Moan. All right. So on to numero uno. Chris. Oh, I said Stevie Bruce. All done for me. Okay. And I've gone with Kevin Campbell. Okay. Um, he's. For me, I, I put him at number one because he was around for so long. It's like something like 19 years, most of which was was actually in the Premiership. Um, and he obviously began his career at Arsenal in back in 1985, and he scored uh, 59 goals in one season for the academy. He, he won the he won the Youth Cup in 1988. Made his first team debut against Everton, ironically, in um, May 1988. Um, <clears throat> But obviously for him, most of their forward positions were taken up by Paul Merson and Alan Smith. He then went off to Leighton Orient. He's got nine goals in 16 games. And then he sort of he went back to Arsenal. And despite Ian Wright being their sort of main guy in 91, he continued to feature for Arsenal, often in Ian Wright's shadow. But he scored several crucial goals back then. Um, and he became... I think in 19, 1993, he scored 19 goals, which was his best for the Gunners. But he then got frozen out again because obviously John Hartson signed and Dennis Burkamp, and that, and that, that reduced his playing time. And he played in total 224 times for Arsenal and he scored, he scored about 60 goals. He then moved to Forest in 95. And he was there for three seasons. He was part of the team that got them back up into the Premiership after they got relegated in 97. He scored 23 goals that season. And then controversially, he left Forest. He went off to um, Trabonsor in Turkey, which caused Pierre van Hoydonk to go on strike. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. <laughs> and um, he, he didn't stay in Turkey long because of, of the racism. So he came back and he signed for Everton, who were battling relegation in the Premier League. Uh, um, to start with, it was on loan, but his, his impact was immediate. He scored nine goals in the first eight games. And he became Everton's top goal scorer, and he pretty much single-handedly saved them from being relegated. And he, he um, became permanent in 1999 for a fee of three million, and he, he carried on scoring for for Everton over the last next next couple of seasons. I think um, in. In the 1999-2000 season, he scored 12 goals. He was then the leading goal scorer the following season. But in 0102, he only got four because of injury. But he did get made captain. And I, I just think that he, he, he was around for such a long period of time in the Premiership. And, OK, he never really set the world alight. But, he, again, he was he was Mr. Consistent. He scored goals. And I think of all the... Once you get past Euro 96, some of the 
some of the strikers they got called up for England, it amazes me that Campbell never got a look in, despite being fairly consistent. I think you know Davies got a call up after his one season wonder. I think BT was BT around then. Yeah. Various, various. But Emil Heskey, um, who was a bit I hit think miss, Malcolm enough. Christie got a call up. Malcolm Christie yeah, probably yeah. got a call up. Yeah, completely right. Yeah. And it baffles me that this player who'd been who played for three top English teams never got a sniff at an England cap. Um, and he he got. He got as far as England under-21s and England B, and he uh, he actually holds the record for being the, the the only English player who scored the most goals in the Premier League without earning a cap for his country. Yep. Yeah. Which um, pretty much sealed it for me. That's why he's my number one. I think it just shows like how stubborn like the managers were not to change things around a little bit and. As well, that you know, we had so long with Sheringham and Shearer, and Sheringham was still playing for England, what until he was in his mid 30s, wasn't he? So, could have looked at probably giving him a chance there at that point, but yeah, I understand why he put him that high. It's a good, good bit of research there. I think he got hat tricks for three different Premier League teams as well, didn't he? I think he did. Yeah. I, I, I always remember him being a quality striker growing up. Oh yeah, it, it, um, yeah. Oh, I always forget how many matches he played for Arsenal. You always think he didn't play that many. It was quite a few, wasn't it? Yeah, so, I, I also didn't realise that he played up until like the early noughties. Yeah, I, th- I thought he was long retired by then. <laughs> yeah, but... Right, so for my number one, I've gone for Mikel Antonio. Ooh, I okay. knew someone was going to pick him. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, he started off his career with Tutigan Mitchum. Uh, he got a move to Reading in 2008. Uh, he spent a lot of time out on loan when he was signed to Reading. Went to uh, Cheltenham, Southampton, Colchester. Uh, got a permanent move to Sheffield Wednesday. And this was when he started to have a good run of form in the, uh, at the championship level. And it actually landed him a £1.5 million move to Forest. Now, he began to stand out at Forest as being one of the best players in the division with his electrifying pace and wing play. And he was voted Forest Player of the Season, uh, subject to a number of bids from different clubs. And ultimately, West Ham signed him for £7 million. This was back in 2015. Now, he's made 168 Premier League appearances for West Ham and scored 52 goals. Uh, that makes him the all-time Premier League leading goal scorer for West Ham. Now, he wasn't always playing as a striker, though. He um, played on the wing, and he was actually played at wing-back on a few occasions. Now, as his confidence started to grow in the Premier League, he started to chip in with more goals, taking on players a little bit more. And uh, as he was uh, becoming an effective goal scorer, and West Ham had difficulty in that position, Ultimately, the move was made to utilise his pace, his power, and his direct running at defenders by moving him to being the lead striker. And it's turned out to be a bit of a masterstroke. His pace and power combination is, to this day, it's striking fear into defenders. His goal-scoring form is excellent. And he's just made an appearance for Jamaica, which makes him ineligible for England now. And at a point where Harry Kane has struggled for form, and Tammy Abraham's not really in the running at the minute. Uh, Marcus Rashford's not playing as a central striker. For me, 
Mikel Antonio should absolutely be in this England squad, if not in the starting lineup for England. And I think it's a big miss that he's not playing for England. And that's why I've made him my number one pick. I think that's that it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? Whenever whenever that question is asked to Gareth Southgate, I'm sure. Um, for somebody who, like you said, literally three seasons ago was playing right back, right wing back, yeah, yeah. then become arguably one of the best strikers in the country is pretty outstanding with no forward experience of what you know. He was only a winger before we moved to West Ham, wasn't he? At Forest, I think he was a winger. Yeah. That Reading he was. To then have no professional experience up front, to then be able to just hit the ground running is pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I've not really known anything like it, to be honest. I know you've mentioned Paul Warhurst, but I think Antonio has been a bit more prolific and successful at the highest level, hasn't he? More consistent, yeah. Yeah, so me, I... Um, I think... Had he not switched to Jamaica, I think perhaps he probably would have got a look in this season. Yeah. I think he probably chose the wrong season to switch. I think had had he not switched this season and Southgate still ignored him. Yeah. And then if I was him, I would have said, right, okay, I'll go Jamaica. But I think the problem is his age, mate. He's yeah. well, I know he's getting on a bit. He yeah. wants to get onto the World Cup or try to. At that time, Jamaica were they were just starting the final phase to get into the mix. And he thought, well, if I played for them, then I might get my World Cup bow. But obviously that doesn't seem to be working for him at the moment, No, unfortunately. Um, but I understand where you, you're coming from. But I think he probably was wait, thought, I've waited too long. I've got to like make that decision now before it's too late. I mean, the way he, he seems pretty fit and healthy, if he can stay fit and healthy, he might be able to get another chance. But again, it's keeping him fit, isn't it? That they, they suffer a lot when he doesn't play, which shows how much of a good player he is. Absolutely. Yeah, the theme throughout my list is about England's need and the players that could have slotted in. and That's why I've put my number one. I think he's definitely... He would have been the number two option behind Kane. And if Kane's not playing well, then I think he offers something a bit different as well with his sort of the power that he brings to the game. It's almost like a bit of a throwback, isn't it? You don't yeah. see that now from the modern players. They're all sort of like these wiry builds with technical ability and the pace and power that Antonio brings. I think it really would scare defences on the international stage. I think that's another part of the problem is I don't think Southgate has a plan B as much. No. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Southgate's plan B is well, I'll play the other three attacking uh, yeah. players, tiki tacky players that I've got. I'll take one winner, winger off and put another one on. Yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll take off Saka and bring on um, Grealish. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's that's why I put it number one. I just think he's a he's a he's a big loss to England. Yeah. I've, I figured someone was going to put him on there at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so that wraps up the top ten. Do you oh. have any honourable mentions? Um, I, I have a couple. <laughs> Let's keep it brief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going into them. Three players I considered were Jermaine Pennant, um, Alan Wright, Aston Villa left back, yeah, and Chris Armstrong. Oh, okay, yeah. Chris, uh, Mark Draper, Peter oh, yeah. Whittingham, and Jimmy yeah. Burrard. 
Peter Whittingham was going to come out of nowhere, but I just couldn't find, dig anything out because he didn't play too many seasons in the Premier League. Yeah. Jimmy Arguably, arguably one of the best, uh, best dead ball um, pre-kick takers and crosses I've seen. All right, I'll, uh, I'll give you two. Uh, Victor Moses, who... Okay, uh, yeah. I think he yeah, opted for Nigeria out the side, time he signed yeah. for Chelsea. Uh, Muzzy is it? Uh, Leicester City oh, yeah, midfielder who Turkey. opted for Turkey because he didn't get selected for England. Yeah. I've got some socials if you want to, want to go through them. Yeah, yeah. Enlighten us. Okay. Uh, one of the guys, Mike at the eight, or Michael, sorry, at the 80s, 90s football. He's given me his top 10. So oh, yeah, go on. Paul Lake. <laughs> if it wasn't for an ACL injury in 1990, he could have been some players in, in the 90s. Retired in 1996 at the age of 27. I can't remember Paul Lake. Can anyone else? I, I only remember being on a football manager game. I didn't actually see him play. And it was a bit oh, of a yeah. bizarre that... I think it was on the 93-94 Championship Manager. He was one of the most expensive players in the game. And oh, I had no really? idea who he was. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Number nine, Rod Wallace, which me and Ant both mentioned. Number eight, Clive Wilson. Okay. Keep your left back. Yeah. Number seven, Kevin Pressman. Ooh, <laughs> I don't know about that one. <laughs> Number six, Kevin Olin, which Ant said. Number five, Alan Wright. Number four, Mark Noble. Yeah. And num number three, Kev Campbell. Number two, Paul Warhurst. And number one, Stevie Bruce. Yeah. Uh, oh, I like your list. Yeah, Kevin Campbell. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then the next one I've got is uh, C. Okay, so th this one is for for the love of lists podcast. They said Steve Bruce really comes to mind. Yeah, um, and then they actually thought of Tony Hibbert. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was. Uh, I, I saw him on a few lists when I was yeah. doing this. Yeah, it was around forever, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. These guys do a few football lists as well. So if you want to listen to them. I wouldn't say Tony Hibbert was ever amazing. <laughs> uh, okay, and then I had um, Stu from the Stu and Our Pod. He said Stephen Taylor. Yeah, yeah, it's a good shout. Yeah, he was actually called. I think he was actually. I looked at that one, and he he was called up twice, I think, and then obviously didn't play. The Bosman Viewing Podcast put Rod Wallace. Well, of course, they did. <laughs> Yeah, the football talent tavern said Steve Bruce. Yep, uh, Chris Kelly said, um, a bit of a wild card, but Mark Albrighton, <laughs> given his consistency and versatility over the years. Yep, Bob and Chris, <laughs> and that, yeah, and that's about it, there, guys. Go! Yes, 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 yes!
Right, guys, I think it's quiz time. Okay, okay. So the scores uh, tied at the top are myself and Ants with 10 wins. And Chris is on five. Scores got that many. So, Chris, I need you to make up some ground on us. <laughs> I might finally get in the lead since the well, first time it's ever won. All the way through, hasn't it? <laughs> I won the first ever quiz, and then Dan's obliterated <laughs> us ever since. Yeah, but not lately. Bad form. The worm has turned. Right then. So, fingers on the buzzers. Question number one. Who were the only team to keep a clean sheet against England in Euro 2020? Scotland. Correct. Can I? Can we? Can you check every time I've answered the question right, the first question right? I bet you I'd be winning this. Right <laughs> <laughs> times I go like two ahead or three ahead of Anne, and then I just lose it. <laughs> All right. Question two: Which team received the most red cards at Euro 2020? France. Wales. It is Wales. Oh. <laughs> This is awful. Yeah. Apadu and uh, Harry Wilson. Oh, right. Yeah. Very, very dubious decisions, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, who won the Euro 2020 Golden Boot Award? Oh, God. Sterling. Nope. Ronaldo. Ronaldo. Oh. It was Ronaldo. Well done, Chris. Say, you're 3-0 down already. 3-0. Five <laughs> goals and one back, assist. Man. Come on, this is how we go. <laughs> All right, question four. Taking it in turns, can you please name one of the five players to have played in the Premier League for both Liverpool and Everton? I'm going to go to... All right, since Chris is winning, Ant, do you want to go first or second? Um... I'll go first. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Nick Barnby. Correct. Chris. Okay, I've got the guy's face in front of me. <laughs> Abel Xavier. Correct. Um, um, how many is there, Dan? Sorry. There's only five. Five, okay. Sorry, did you say Premier League era? Yep. Sander Vestervelt. Oh, well done. Yes. How do you get that one out of the five? I, I don't know. I had an inkling. Has he like... even play for Everton? Has he played a game? I've got no recollection of him playing for Everton. Um, oh, you beauty. I, I vaguely remember some vague uproar about him. <laughs> That's not me for six, though. I thought I had that one in the back. Uh... I'm going to have to... 
guess on this one. Um, I'll go with Gary McAllister. I'm afraid not, Chris. He played for Liverpool, but he didn't play for Everton. So the point goes to Ant, making it 3-1. The two that we've not mentioned were David Burrows and Don Hutchinson. Oh, Don Hutchinson, of course, yeah. I had Don Hutchinson lined up, but I wouldn't have got David Burrows. Yeah, that was a toughie. Yeah. All right, question five. Okay, so this is a gamble question. There are 16 players who have made Premier League appearances over the age of 40. So out of those 16, 40 plus, how many can you name? And I'll give you a clue. A lot of them are goalkeepers. Uh, <laughs> In the Premier League era, did you say? Um, yeah, yeah, Premier League. Yeah. Premier League era. I'll come to Ant first. Shift opening bid. Four. Okay. Okay, go with five. Six. Floor's yours, mate. God. Uh, Van der Sar. Correct. Whee! <laughs> um, um, Sheringham. Correct. Um, Mark Schwarzer. Yes, he was 42 when he turned out for Leicester. Jesus. Um, Jens Lehmann. Yep. Four, need two more. Um, Brad Friedel. Correct. Last one. God. How many did you say there were? 16. 16? Yeah. Um, Aguizovich. Correct. Damn it. Well done. <laughs> well done. Was Nev Southall one of them? Oh, I forgot about him. <laughs> yes, he was. We'll I'll, read, I'll read the full one. list. Yeah. Uh, the oldest player to ever play in the Premier League was John Burridge, played for Man City. <laughs> uh, Alec Chamberlain. Did he play in the Premier League? For Watford, I think, yeah. Uh, uh, Steve Grisovich, Brad Friedel, Kevin Poole. That was an oh. appearance for Bolton. Yeah. Uh, Edwin van der Sar, Mark Swartzer, Neville Southall, Jens Lehmann, Teddy Sheringham, Steve Harper, Kevin yeah. Phillips, Gordon Strachan, David Seaman, Ryan Giggs, and Trey Given. Oh, Ryan Giggs. A few of them are obvious when you think about it. But... No, well done. You've got, got some blinders there, mate, to be fair. Yep, that was a good one. Well done. But I've got another gamble question for you now. Probably harder, if anything. 
So Claudio Ranieri has just become the manager of Watford. During his career, he's managed 19 different teams. How many can you name? Have we not had this one before? For Ranieri? Yeah. I don't think for Ran. I don't think so. If we have, you should do very well at it. (laughs) We include in national teams. Yep. I'm sure we've had this one before. Who's going first? Chris, what's your opening bid? Um, seven. Okay. Only got seven. Um, eight. Um, go on, Em. Oh. You go for it, mate. Um, Leicester. Yep. Watford. Yep. Uh, Fulham. Yep. Chelsea. Yep. Uh, that four? Um, Greece. Yes. Um, Roma. Yes. You're on six. Uh, Valencia. He has managed Valencia, yes. No, on I'm two occasions. Wowzers. Um, Monaco. Yep. I don't know. That's your eight. The point goes to Ant. I'll read you the full list. Uh, Vigo Lamezia. No, oh, of course. Yeah, I don't forget <laughs> that one. Putialana. Cagliari, Napoli, Fiorentina, Valencia, Atletico Madrid, Chelsea, Valencia, Parma, Juventus, Roma, Inter Milan, Monaco, Greece, Leicester City, Nantes, Fulham, Roma, Sampdoria, Watford. Right, and then uh, I've got another gamble question here. How many of the 12 teams that Les Ferdinand played for can you name? And I'm coming to you Ants for your opening bid. Um, three. Okay, four. <laughs> um, it's Ferdinand. It's Ferdinand. Five. Go on, then I'll go six. Yeah, go on, Chris. Okay. I'll go Newcastle. Yep. Spurs. Yep. QPR. Yep. Fenerbahce. You sure about Fenerbahce? 100%. Ever played for Fenerbahce, Isn't Chris? It? No, it's the other one. Played for Besiktas. Yes, the other one. No, Mark, I didn't put my house on it. Just... And can you name one other team that Les Ferdinand played for? Steal the points. 
West Ham. Yes, he played for West Ham. That was literally about my limit, I think. Leicester, Bolton. Yep, Leicester, Bolton. Oh, Leicester, of course. Yeah. Reading, uh, Watford, although he didn't actually play a game there. Uh, Brentford, Hayes, and Southall. And about Chambers Four three to Ant following those gambles. (laughs) All right, question eight. Taking it in turns, can you name one of the six German players to have won the Premier League? And I'll start with Chris. Jens Lehmann. Yep. Oh god, I'm doubting myself if you won it now. Michael Ballack. He did win it, yes. Gundaran. Yeah, of course. Um, Robert Huth. Yes, two different teams. Two left, Chris. Okay. Oh, God, this is frustrating. I'm amazed it's only been six, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, bloody hell. Um, oh, come on. Oh, I'm blank. Leroy Sané. Yep. Oh. <laughs> That's one. one there's one left and probably yeah. the hardest one on the list. <laughs> That's one. Oh. <laughs> that was the one I had in the bank. Um, Is that the one you had in the bank? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the last one's a toughie. Now the pressure's off, I might be able to think now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, crikey. Um... I don't know if he won it, but he's the only other German player I can think of right now. Um, Can't remember his first name. Schirrle. Andre Schurler. Andre Schurler, yeah. Yeah, he won it. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> well done, man. I couldn't think of any more German players. Andre Schurler. Who was he playing Chelsea. Chelsea. Oh, fuck's sake. He wouldn't have won it with Fulham, would he? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Of course, yeah. Oh, well done, man. So it scores to 5-3. I thought, I thought you were going to say, I thought it's going to be like Carrius, you know, like because he was not on loan at the time or something. Oh, yeah. A trick one. Hmm. I thought Dietmar Hamann, but then I realised he never actually played for a team that won the title at, at that time. No, yeah. No, it's a good shout. All right, question nine. There are nine players who have scored 10 or more direct free kicks in the Premier League. We'll take it in turns. Can you name one? I don't like these questions tonight. <laughs> I'll go to Ant first. Beckham. Yep, Beckham's number one on the list. He scored 18 direct free kicks. Bloody hell. I'll be doing one each then, is it? Taking it in turns. Yep. Yeah. You'll go, Chris. I'll go with Cristiano Ronaldo. Yep. 
He's scored 11 direct free kicks, so he's joint fourth on the list. Oh. Gerard? Nope. Oh. Nope. Chris, can you name one more? Ian Hart. Ian Hart? Leeds. Yes. You're right. <laughs> he scored 10 direct free kicks. Well done, Chris. That's amazing. <laughs> Didn't even consider him. <laughs> Fair play. Well done. Well, that's brilliant. So um, the top 10, it's David Beckham, Gianfranco Zola, Thierry Henry, Laurent Robert, Cristiano Ronaldo, mm. Sebastian Larson, Ian Hart, Morton Gams Pedersen, James Ward-Prowse. Oh, no, I, had, I had James Ward-Prowse on my list and I chose Gerard. <sighs> I also had Bruno Fernandes and Jamie Redknapp, but glad I didn't say them. <laughs> <laughs> right, so the score is 5-4 to Ant. Question 10 is a who am I? So I'm going to read out one clue at a time and offer you the, the option to shout out one answer each. Okay. So number one. I am one of only two players to have scored penalties in the Premier League with both my left foot and my right foot. <laughs> no guesses? Um, so if we guess now, are we, are we out of the... No, 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 you'll get a guess after each clue. Okay. Oh. for me, no. Nope. All right, next clue. I am a former Nigeria international striker. Kanu. Nope. Daniel Amakachi. Nope. Right, next clue. I've scored top flight league goals in Italy, England, Germany, Russia, Spain, United States, and China. In that order. Samuletto. Nope. I guess he's gone then. Oh, he's not Nigerian, is he, Samuelita? <laughs> <laughs> JJ Okocha. Yeah, you've had your guess for this clue, Ant. Oh, sorry. Uh, and it's not him anyway. No. Um, <laughs> so what was the order of the, the countries again, Saidan? Italy, England, Germany, Russia, Spain, United States, China. Um, Panidi George. Good guess, but no. All right, next clue. At Inter Milan, I became the first teenager to score in three consecutive Champions League matches. Inter Milan. My mind has gone complete blank. Couldn't have been many Nigerians that played for Inter Milan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to kill me. I swear. Oh, no. I oh, know. I feel really pain, Chris. Um, he's played for so many other clubs, so he's been around for a while. How many clues have we got left? Uh, three. Oh, okay. You happy to move on to the next one? Um, I think we're going to have to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In England, I scored the winning goal in a League Cup final. Oh, um, oh damn, damn you! I just got it. 
Well done, Chris. For sake. <laughs> oh. oh, I enjoyed that one. <laughs> I bet you did. I, <laughs> I was thinking, has, has Dan lied to us? <laughs> Is he not really Nigerian? I was, I was thinking of every African player under the sun, but they weren't Nigerian. <laughs> right. It's five all. Question 11. Which League One team play their home games at the New York Stadium? Oh, um... Fleetwood Town? No. Oh, God, I know this one. Can I have another guess, or is... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Bristol Rovers? Nope. Cambridge? United? Nope. I don't know if it helps, but it's also known as the... Um, a E S S E A L New York Stadium. Oh, um, uh, Rotherham. Yes, it is Rotherham. What an ant. Are they not in the championship now? No, I got relegated. No, got relegated. Oh, no, I can't keep up with Rotherham. They're, 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 they're the West yeah, yeah. of. Um, yeah, they are. The they are a yo yo between yeah. Championship and League One. Right, six five. Question 12. Which League Two team play their home games at Glanford Park? Or it is as it is currently known, the Sands Venue Stadium. League Two. Scunthorpe. Correct. Chris. So that's six or we've got three questions left. This next one, I'm going to give you a list of clubs that they played for in chronological order. Shout out the player name as and when you figure it out. So this player played for River Plate, Bayern Munich, Malaga, Atletico Madrid, Man City, Espanyol, Malaga. Nicolas Otamendi? Nope. Sorry, Man City, Espan. I'll read them all again. It's uh, River Plate, Bayern Munich, Malaga, Atletico Madrid, Man City, Espanyol, Malaga. It's a bit of a drop, isn't it? <laughs> he played um, for him. It was a good guess, Chris, but no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, oh. Um, uh, um, De yes, Martin De yeah. yeah, that's it. I couldn't remember his first name. Okay, that's seven six to Ant. Two questions left. So, Chris, the pressure's on. I'll get both them 100%. It's another question the same as format. I'll read you the clubs that they played for in chronological order. Okay. Cruzeiro, America MG, Barcelona, Benfica, Cruzeiro, Man City, Hull City, San Jose Earthquakes. Gio Giovanni. It is Giovanni. Well done, Ant. Well done, mate. So 
eight six, and you have won the quiz this episode. Yay. Do the last one for pride, then. Go on, then, for pride, Chris. Last question. It was going to be a, a guess from each of you, so you can get closest to the number. Oh, you beauty. On what is the record attendance for a Premier League game? Oh. <laughs> Premier League. So as Ant's leading, I'll make him go first. Oh, God. Premier League. All right. Um... Uh, I'll go uh, 70,000. Okay. I actually put Chris. down 67. You're in 67? Yeah. Well, the point goes to Ant. The highest attendance in a Premier League game was 83,222. And that was Tottenham. At home to oh. Arsenal at oh. Wembley yeah, in course. February 2018. Oh, I was thinking of Wembley. I was thinking of club stadiums and yeah, yeah. Wembley. I know. <laughs> Tricked us. <laughs> <laughs> so the final score is nine six. Well done to Ants, and you are now the outright leader oh, of the VAR at the Bar Quiz. Well, you can catch me up next week or oh, next time <laughs> we do it. We'll see. We'll see. I'll have to tweak it in Chris's favour. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, you got a three 0 lead as well. On, Chris, brush up on your Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> a three 0 lead, and then it went to part again. Then right. you need to learn not to give me gamble questions. No, <laughs> but you. Point. But you, you look, you look like you struggle, but obviously you play it with I'm, poker I'm hand. Focusing my memory. <laughs> I have a photographic memory. Right, so that wraps up the quiz and that wraps up the episode. So it's been a pleasure, gents, and hopefully we'll be together for another episode soon. So it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And we look forward to seeing you next time. is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.